Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at Political underscore Beats. We're also on Facebook. We invite you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or over at NationalReview.com. Click on Podcasts, find all the fine NR episodes and shows, including ours at Political Beats. And we point you to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash politicalbeats, to support the show and help us stay ad-free, of course. There's entry-level for support and voting privileges on various things, mid-level for early access at a higher audio quality for episodes, and our upper-level bestest friends for early access, higher audio quality, monthly exclusive content episodes, remastered old episodes, playlists, and much more. Find it all at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? Doing fine. Very excited to be taping this episode, Scott. I mean, you know how, how long a road it's been for us to put this together. How many guests did we have lined up that dropped out? at the last moment for like weird mysterious reasons that have never been fully explained was it one guest two guests no it was three guests but now we finally lined up this promising young man i think that people are going to like him i hear a lot of good things about him here he's an excellent writer that always is good i think this could lead to some real creative alchemy on this episode of political beats the best thing is he actually wants to talk with us about the the music you know it's, it's always a key thing when a member Important wants well. to contribute yes uh, oh, but the downside is that he, he's insisting that his wife join the show. <laughs> uh, find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. Our guest on this episode is a returning guest. Uh, was on perhaps our one of our you know, one of our listener favorite episodes. I still hear a, comments about it. Oh yes, featuring a little band called the Beatles, and he returns now. He is senior writer for National Review Online. Uh, co-host of the Editors and Mad Dog and Englishman podcast at National Review. You can find him, too, at charlescwcook.com. Sign up for his weekly newsletter out on Saturdays. It is Charles C. W. Cook joining us once again. Charles, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me again. And, of course, now that I'm not the editor, then everyone can rest easy in the knowledge that I didn't force you to have me on. <laughs> No, our choice, purely our choice to invite back Charles to the program. And uh, we, uh, we first uh, we first allowed Charles to tell us a little about himself and what he does. There's been a, a job shift, as he alluded to, since the last time he was on the program, now a senior writer. So uh, what do you do now, Charles? Well, what I do now is what I did before I became editor, which is write every day about politics. Uh, I often... I'm asked by people, why didn't you write about this thing that happened in 2017 or 2019? Often under the assumption that I was uh, missing it on purpose or <laughs> engaging in some sort of double standard. But of course, the answer was that I was the editor. So I, I didn't write as much. I read everything that went up on the site. But now I don't. Now I write what I think and then have time to do other things, like, for example, appear on this podcast. And, you know, just personal uh, note, it is a pleasure to have you writing once again and again, or uh, writing more once again. And, and you know that's a that's a real true sentiment because, again, you're not the editor anymore and can't punish us for anything <laughs> might say. So that I really mean that. Uh, yeah, I didn't miss it that much. <laughs> 
Charles is back with us for uh, a two-part episode, so it's part one, it's a part one of two, involving a band that uh, that perhaps a, a good number of people don't quite comprehend and understand the uh, breadth and width of the music created before uh, two people named Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks joined the group. But there's a lot to talk about before that era, and that's what we try to accomplish here on part one of the Political Beats look at Fleetwood Mac. Charles, back to you to explain why you love Fleetwood Mac, how you got into them, and why people should care about this music, especially the stuff pre-Buckingham Nicks. Well, in a sense, Fleetwood Mac is an opposite to the Beatles, which was the subject of my last appearance. Fleetwood Mac is, is the yin to the yang. No, not because they don't share uh, some history. In fact, uh, family relations, George Harrison and uh, Mick Fleetwood were brothers-in-law at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, but because the Beatles is, is, is a band... That, the Beatles are a band that have four people. And with the exception of, you know, the... the uh, stand-ins on tour they have the same four people for their entire career and they shift around musically but it's the john paul george and ringo show throughout and fleetwood mac is exactly the opposite of that i mean it's quite difficult to conceptualize fleetwood mac as a single band it's not even a band like the Eagles, where they had a rotating lineup, but you you kept the core. Mm -hmm. In a sense, Fleetwood Mac is a a shell (laughs) into which lots of different bands are pushed. Now, there are constants, of course, which we'll talk about. Drummer, the bassist, um, uh, Christine uh, McVie, to, to a point. But if you play people the early Fleetwood Mac stuff and then you play them the later Fleetwood Mac stuff, they wouldn't necessarily put it together. is you have this early blues group followed by uh, a a poppy group that makes a slow evolutionary trail towards the band that everybody knows.
I will put my cards on the table. I think that for most people, and I include myself in this, it is the, the later band that stands out. Uh, the 1975 iteration is classic. It is famous for a reason. But that does not mean for a moment that the rest of the story isn't interesting. And um, I, to underscore this idea of various different bands pushed into one shell, discovered the two eras of Fleetwood Mac independently from one another <laughs> and by accident. Now, the later period I discovered because my dad had a copy of Rumors. and Everybody's dad had a copy of Rumors. It was mandatory. Right. Yeah, right. right. And as a kid, I played it and I loved it. And it's magisterial. And we'll get to that next time. Then later on, I found a little track called Need Your Love So Bad. And I had no idea that it was by Fleetwood Mac. So why don't you give it up and bring it home to me? Or write it on a piece of paper, baby. So it can be read to me. Tell me that you love me and stop driving me mad. Oh, because I, I need your love so bad Need a soft voice That talk to me at night I don't want you to worry, baby I know we can make everything all right Listen to my plea, baby Bring it to me Because I need Your love so bad uh, And in fact, when I discovered that it was by Fleetwood Mac, I was extremely confused because <laughs> it doesn't sound like Fleetwood Mac. The guitar playing doesn't sound like Lindsey Buckingham and the vocals don't sound like any of the members of the band. And that's because the guitar playing isn't by Lindsey Buckingham and the vocals aren't by any members uh, of the Rumours era band. And I was so confused by this that I started listening through and found this uh, peculiar uh, but valuable collection um, of songs uh, that existed um, and were popular and well-known and toward the end well-selling long before Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham came along. Um, so I suppose what we're going to do in this episode is talk about what I see as two different bands even before you get to 1975 but that share a name and that name is Fleetwood Mac. Walking miles before 
Why did they share that name? They share that name because of you know Mick Fleetwood and John McVie. And of course, the the, the bit the fun joke about Fleetwood Mac is that when they started the band, John McVie wasn't even in the band. Right. <clears throat> they were Fleetwood Mac because because John McVie was reluctant to actually like you know join at that point. But uh, you know that's ahead of us. Uh, you know, for me, like. How did you first become aware of Fleetwood Mac? Oh, of course, I became aware with the Lindsay and Stevie year of Fleetwood Mac, with my dad's videos of Hold Me and Gypsy, especially, which remains to my day. If I had to like encompass, you know, from 1967 to the present moment, what's the greatest Fleetwood Mac song of all time? I'll spoiler alert you right now: it's going to be Gypsy. That's probably my number one of all. Um, but I didn't. I knew that this phase existed as a notion because you went to the Rolling Stone record guide and <clears throat> you looked at your dad's record collection, as Scott pointed out, and you saw you know, rumors. Okay, I see that one. Huh? Uh, Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, I see that one. That's the one with Rhiannon on it. And then all of a sudden, there's like this list of records before it. And you ask yourself, like, wait a second, there are other Fleetwood Mac records? Because you never saw those in the bins. You could go to your Sam Goody store or in the CD bins and you could find tons of like, you know, the, the Lindsay and Stevie era Fleetwood Mac stuff. You'd find none of the early Peter Green or God help you, the Bob Welch material in the bins. It didn't exist. It was it was on CD. You had to order it from ob some obscure back catalog. I don't know. It was really hard to find as a child. The way I first became aware that that part of Fleetwood Mac's career even existed was when I, I, I plunked down for this. Very expensive, but ultimately worth it, and I, I still love it to this day. Four CD box set called The Chain, 25 Years, The Chain, uh, that you know, quite understandably devotes three of its four CDs to the Lindsay and Stevie era, uh, and in, even including some of the really lame like 1990-era stuff. Hmm. Uh, but the fourth disc is all the early material, and it opens with Jeremy Spencer playing that big Dust My Broom Elmore James riff, and going, oh yeah, and you're like, what the hell is this? I was shocked. I was so shocked that these could be the same bands that I couldn't quite believe it. This is during an era where there wasn't a lot of documentation. The story of Fleetwood Mac turns out to be one of the most insane, wild, and fascinating stories of all time. Back then, it was really hard to like, know much about what it was. You know, my dad like knew some of the details vaguely remembered from the early 70s. It's like, yeah, I think that happened, and then the guitarist slept with the drummer's wife. Like, he didn't quite remember, but it was something, there was like all these weird ructions, and this was long before Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks had ever entered the picture. And I finally like ended up finding out about this band and 
what kind of bugged me about its previous obscurity is that this is great music. This is music that I hold to be. I think I would agree with what Charlie said. That you know that 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 you know, taken all in all, rumors and Tusk, um, and Mirage are probably greater achievements. But uh, there is absolutely no reason why people don't know about an album like Mystery to Me, or don't know about Then Play On, or um, Future Games, or you know the early blues era, those blues singles uh, of Fleetwood Mac, because I think they were the best at what they did. They were, in many ways, a slapped together band, which is why they could revolve around that hub and spoke of you know Fleetwood on drums and, and McVie on bass, uh, but that rhythm section ended up becoming an actual rhythm section, like a really powerful one and a distinctive one and a shockingly versatile one. And this is the era where they honed those chops. If you want to find out how it was possible for them to become the Fleetwood Mac that they became when they became ultra-famous, well, you find out here in this long sort of you know growth towards that. And you find out how everything was so contingent along the way and it could have gone in so many different directions. This is a band whose story has fascinated me for decades, so I guess I'll get into most of the details when we start talking about the band. But I'm really looking forward to these two episodes. about this era of Fleetwood Mac as more of a, uh, uh, I guess no pun intended, rumor, uh, because of the few songs that I had heard were through various cover. I mean, Oh Well's been covered in a lot of places. I knew uh, Bare Trees. Uh, I knew a few other things that had been released and maybe on a movie soundtrack. There's a, there's a song that's on the almost famous soundtrack that I, that I certainly knew about. And I also semi-knew the story. Uh, there were a few twists and turns that I was unfamiliar with, but I, I, I knew about Peter Green, and I knew about Bob Welch, and I knew, you know, Christine Perfect, then Christine McVie joined the band and got married and then divorced, and that's uh, the divorce, is, I guess, is a, is a part two uh, story to tell. And so I knew this this outline, and as uh, as Charlie said, he, he, so he, I, would say, I would say this about the era of Fleetwood Mac. Uh, this this Fleetwood Mac is like the weather in Chicago. If you don't like it, wait 15 minutes and you'll hear something else. Um, this the, you know stylistically, uh, from what you hear on you know the debut and on Mr. Wonderful, going to uh, Kill House or going deeper up into like Penguin, those are very very different styles of music. Uh, even as they as Charlie put it, evolved. Uh, sort of in the later years, album to album, you know, I, I hear a lot of different things going on. And yes, certainly part of that is there are new members. 
uh, shifting in and out of the lineup for a long portion of this era of Fleetwood Mac's career. There is some... But it's a lot of just trying anything to see if yes. it'll work is yes. what it is. And espe- you know, especially trying to break through in the U.S., which took a really long time for this band. And I, w- I would quibble only slightly with, with, with Jeff and say that I think this era of Fleetwood Mac features some really excellent music, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But I would, I would say it's, it's more uneven, again, not rightfully so, but with good explanation. Uh, because there are members coming in and out. There are different sort of genres being tested. Uh, I, I think there are some albums that don't work. There's one that um, is pretty universally loved that I, I, I don't like really whatsoever. Uh, so I, I, I think, by and large, we're going to find, or at least I found, some really high points and some music that holds up extremely well. Some of that blues stuff uh, could have been released in the past decade with sort of the, you know, the blues revival, if you want to look at the white stripes or even a little bit like the black keys, uh, that sort of blues that they're playing that electric blues, man, a lot of the early, you know, first couple of albums from this era of Fleetwood Mac hold up very well and sound very, would sound very fresh. Even these days, uh, it, it's that transitory period where I think we then see some albums that, that come together very well in which we hear members complimenting each other and doing what they can to, to, to sort of make the songs the best they can be. And I hear other places in which uh, the, the band is sort of pulling apart from each other during the course of those 11, 12 songs. So uh, I, there's good stuff here, but I would think, I, I would sort of say it's a little more uneven than, than, than Jeff says it is. But we'll get into that in the course of the episode. One of the things that I'll be returning to, uh, you know, throughout these couple of episodes, at least I hope I'll be returning to. I hope I have the, uh, you know, the uh, the memory to return to it. Is how the story of Pink of of Fleetwood Mac's career is like a tapestry, yeah, in that like each of these albums, seen in sequence with one another, like tell a story about like there's something really weird going on with this band. Oh, you know, this is interesting. They must be reaching a high point. Oh. Heroes are hard to find. Something was really wrong with this band. You can always tell when there's some drama going on with mm-hmm. the group. Like, why did Tusk follow rumors? Well, there's a very, re- there's a very specific reason why that happened. You know, and you know the story of the group, which is again one of the craziest stories in the history of rock and roll music, enough for at least three other Hall of Fame level bands, uh, is found not directly in the lyrics of their songs which are almost never you know some of the love lyrics in later years could be but this is not a a band that tells its story in songs really it's a band that tells its story overall in the progression of its music and so why is it so schizophrenic well this is a band i think it's fair to say that you know it could justly be accused of schizophrenia. Now, before I just go on to sort of like setting up, you know, the early blues stuff, you know, Charlie, do you have anything else you want to say at the front before I move on? No, let's move on. So, you know, how did this band come about? Well, this band came about because the British blues scene had never really entirely gone away. Well, where was it in the first place? In the early 60s, it was located in London. It was that hub around which, you know, John Mile was playing, but you had Eric Clapton and the Yardbirds, who then broke in and became, you know, know, Clapton left the Blues Breakers, joins the Yardbirds. They become big pop successes. This is another sort of feeder lane into the world of mainstream success in the pop charts in britain um and you know all of their all of their lead guitarists have gone on to great great distinction at this point you know um <clears throat> uh, in, in between um uh 
Eric Clapton and Mick Taylor came a man named Peter Green as lead guitarist for John Mayall. Uh, and he was playing with a rhythm section behind him, drums and bass, played by a drummer named Mick Fleetwood, who was like a veritable giant. He's like five, he's like six foot ten or something like that. Um, and six foot ten and dyslexic and, and incredibly fond of being photographed in, in tidy whitey underwear for some reason <laughs> all throughout the band's career. Uh, Got a big fondness for ball jokes, as you can see on the covers of several Fleetwood Mac albums. He's a weird one. John McVie is the quiet one. He's the bassist. Um, they form a pretty formidable rhythm section. They decide to strike out from the Blues Breakers and start their own blues band. Uh, for the first, I think, two songs, they have a replacement bassist. But eventually, McVie joins them together. Uh, who's the fourth member of the band? This guy, Peter Green, the guitarist. Uh, and I'll talk about his technique in a moment. He said he was looking for a second guitarist. He wanted a two-guitar show, a show and an album. Uh, so he needed somebody else who could, like, you know, play fire alongside with him. He went on, listened to a demo of somebody that recommended, you know, a demo to him. He listened to his, he was amazed by the guitarist, went to see that player live, walked up on stage to that guitar player, said, I'm forming a new band and you're a part of it. And since he was Peter Green, who was famous, this, this guy was just gobsmacked. Uh, and he said, yeah, the name of the band is called Fleetwood Mac, and we don't even have the Mac yet. And Jeremy Spencer was in. I said goodbye to my sweet rider. I said I, she couldn't use me no more. Is a mean old fireman and a cruel old engineer. And that is who the second guitarist was. Jeremy Spencer, one of the weirdest people to ever, ever be part of a major rock group in the modern era of, you know, the rock era. I won't talk about him right now. What you have is four blues musicians going in to record a fairly diverse and interesting blues album that showcases a their youth there's no question that these are still kids and i think it was it was uh i can't remember which blues musician said you know these white boy kids in britain they want to play the blues so bad and they do play the blues so bad uh that was of course the downfall of so much of british blues um, but Fleetwood Mac do not embarrass themselves at all. I think their performances here hold up really well, and in particular, I cannot say enough good things about Peter Green's guitar and his guitar technique and his voice. I think all around as a performer, he impresses the hell out of me. What do you guys think? I love his voice. And my notes for the first record, I don't know if we're ready to start that yet, but I wrote that down. I just love the guy's voice. He's a real talent yeah let's just take the first record in any of these early blues singles too well what you see on the first record and on need your love so bad in particular which in keeping with practice in the 60s is not on an album mm -hmm. originally you know you, you get this with the beatles too when when you first get into them you're looking on the early albums for the famous singles she loves you and, it, and it's not on there well need your love so bad is in my view the best early track and it and it's 
not on there. In fact, Jeff, I think you sent me about 19 different recordings of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the full point. studio outtakes are there. And, and I love you, listening to it. I was about to just, say, you might think this is a six-minute long song and it's unedited version. You might think that listening to that like eight times in a row would get you boring. It doesn't. Peter Green plays different solos every time. He does. And, and what you realize is just what a talent the guy is. And in a sense, there is something unjust about the fact that when people think of Fleetwood Mac, they think of Lindsay Buckingham, for whom I have enormous respect. But Peter Green has disappeared. It, it is only music lovers who know who Peter Green is. If you ask someone on the street who is Peter Green, they won't know. If you say who was in Fleetwood Mac, they won't mention Peter Green. And yet you have this guy who has this fantastic voice, who has an instinctive understanding of blues, such an instinctive understanding that B.B. King early on is saying, this guy has got it. And who has a, a tone and a way of playing that does not sound like anyone else. I mean, he comes out of this blues scene, as you describe, Jeff, and he's essentially swapping in and out with people like Eric Clapton. But he doesn't sound like Eric Clapton. He sounds like Peter Green. And on this first album and the second album, you can immediately tell who is playing what mm -hmm. because of his style. Now, there are also some, some strange decisions which we'll talk about in certain band members not playing on other band members' tracks. But Peter Green is unique. And I wouldn't quite go so far as to say he is the band uh, but early on it would have been reasonable to call it Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac as it subsequently became known as cool. Yes but when I looked into your eyes yeah, I knew true love had come to me I actually am frustrated by this first record because it's horribly recorded. Hmm. It sounds to me as if they have plugged everything directly into the desk. There's almost no room tone. Uh, the equipment they're using is sterile. And although you can't really keep Peter Green and those musicians down, compared to subsequent work, it just feels a little dull to me and it's not the performances it it's the production uh, and and the recording 
I think um, you're right about that. The thinness of the tone is apparent. There's a song here called uh, uh, Shake Your Moneymaker, uh, which I think is technically credited to Jeremy Spencer, but kids, don't kid yourself. It was not written by him. I think he wrote some new words to an old song. Uh, it's a great, great, like, you know, rocking electric blow, like a jam right through. Uh, and it should just be really, really powerful. And they have live versions of it out there where it, it demolishes exactly the way that you would expect it to. But on the studio recording by Mike Vernon, uh, yeah, for Blue Horizon Records, there's just something about those studios that sounds very kind of almost genteel at times. I'm so frustrated. I just want to pick the band up and take them to Abbey Road and put them in Studio 3 and say, do exactly the same thing. But just do it here. But just do it here. And and there's a lot on that album that does that to me. You know, um, well, I think Side 2 is much stronger than Side 1. Um, you know, I, w- I want to transport them for My Baby's Good to Me. I want to transport them for... I loved another woman, which really should be called I loved another black magic woman because it's basically the same <laughs> song. And when you first hear it, you think, how did that happen? Um, okay, no, I will insist it is not the same song. It is not the same mood. It's not structurally the same song. It's not melodically the same song either. It isn't, and it's what impresses me. I was all set to come down and say, because, you know, I've always had that same association in my mind. How could you not? And then I listened to it. It was like, you know what? Okay, Peter Green clearly said, I like this mood. I'm stealing this mood. He stole it. He recycled it. But it's like the uh, it's like the uh, blurred lines case uh, for plagiarism. He stole the mood and the feel, but he did not steal the melody. I insist on that. No, he didn't. He didn't. But it, it's it's Black Magic Woman in utero. She was a real good woman. She didn't mean me no harm. She was. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the tracks on this record that really stand out to me are the 
Peter Green ones. They're the ones that Peter Green writes and sings and stars on. And again, much as I complain about the production, you just can't keep the guy down. I don't want to lose Jeremy Spencer's contributions to this first album because they, I, I think they're strong. You know, Spencer's a slide player. And the first cut on the album, My Heart Beat Like a Hammer, that's a Spencer song in which you really hear his great slide work alongside that sort of snaky lead from Peter Green. And the you know, name that's going to keep coming up, at least uh, for this first album and a half or two albums or so, is you know Elmore James. Uh, it's his style, that sort of boogie style blues that Fleetwood Mac plays so well. I think those are the, the highlights from this first Fleetwood Mac album. Well, my heart beat like a hammer, my eyes gone full of tears. Yes, my heart beat like a hammer, my eyes gone full of tears. Listen, folks, you, you might think you don't know what we're talking about when we refer to a, quote, Elmore James blues lick. I guarantee you, you know what we're talking about. It's the most famous blues lick of all time. It's the one that goes, do 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 It's really famous. But imagine an album full of nothing but that <laughs> and that's where you get perilously close to you know, the second record anyways keep going scott yes yes yeah and that is the problem with the second record which we'll come to in a second i i think i love another woman might be my favorite track on this debut uh even if it does sort of echo uh what would be coming in a single in a, in a few months but that haunting vibe the echo laden production it's really a strong, strong Peter Green song, and one of the first real prominent bass lines from John McVie, too, is on I Loved Another Woman. Uh, none of these songs overstay their welcome. It's a pleasant listen, with uh, as long as you keep in mind the production issues that uh, that, that Charlie mentioned. Um, I, I, I need to, uh, I know we're going to talk about some of these singles here, uh, Need Your Love So Bad, uh, I know it's early in the episode, it, it might be the single best song of this entire era. Uh, it is such a fantastic, slow blues song that just, just beautifully unfolds. And again, early, you also hear Mick Fleetwood's strengths as a drummer. That snapping snare on Need Your Love So Bad is great. And it's, it's, a, it's a contrast We've mentioned Black Magic Woman a couple times. That you know, People associate that with Santana, but that didn't come out, what, two years after this Fleetwood Mac version. I think this is superior to the Santana version, even though that's far better known. And I think I think Peter Green plays a better solo than San Carlos Santana does. And Mick Fleetwood's drums on Need Your Love So Bad is that snapping snare, and on Black Magic Woman, it is just the power uh, the strength with which he plays that really stands out to me. 
Uh, those singles in the span of a couple of months, I think, show a lot of growth uh, and, and a lot of maturity in the way this band is playing together. I got a black magic woman. I got a black magic woman. Yes, I got a black magic woman. Got me so blind I can't see. But she's a black magic woman and she's trying to make a devil out of me. Don't turn your back on me, baby. Don't turn your back on me, baby. Yes, don't turn your back on me, baby. You're messing around with your tricks. Don't turn your back on me, baby. Cause you might just break up my magic stick. First of all, I actually agree with most of what you said, which I'm pleased to admit, because I did not think I was going to be able to. Um, this show be was booked. I'll say this about the uh, original Fleetwood Mac, you know, which is to say the original foursome with Spencer uh, and uh, Green up front and only, you know, McVie and Fleetwood in the back, is that um, Spencer is a very weird dude who has to be reckoned with in all these albums and in all these sessions. When Green hired him, he expected him to be, you know, the guy who would back him up when he's playing his blues songs. Uh, but if you listen to the Fleetwood Mac album, the debut album, every single song that Peter Green sings is a trio performance. There's no other guitar behind it. Jeremy Spencer isn't playing on those songs. Meanwhile, on Jeremy Spencer's songs, Peter Green is all over that material. So why? Why is this the case? Well, the way it was explained by Spencer and even by Green and others in the band was that, that there was just something weird about him that made him unable to learn other people's songs or play other people's music. The only things that he could do that he knew how to do, it turns out he was like, I don't know, almost on the autism spectrum, I suppose, that he could play these like incredible impersonations of Elmore James' 12-bar you know, bottleneck slide, right? Uh, and he could do like you know Elvis Presley and you know Buddy Holly like 1950s rock impersonations as well, but he had nothing of his own underneath him. He had no core to him. He couldn't play other people's new music. All he knew is to, how to do is the things that he loved. And it would be this curious dynamic within Fleetwood Mac for the next several albums, and and it kind of makes it, it puts the context of his departure. You know, into a more understandable light, I think, mm -hmm. too, when we get there. Um, but you're left with the fact that, yeah, a lot of times he he sounds like a very squawky teenager singing these yappy blues songs, and you know, this, the excitement level will get it across on a song like "My Heartbeat Like a Hammer" or "Shake Your Money Maker." But man, like when he's fumbling around on the keyboards playing "Hell Out on My Trail" badly, or uh, yeah. Or what is it? Cold Black Night? Yuck. I don't like those songs. I don't like that aspect of Mac. And, and the worst part of what I think is, if not their worst album, then very close. The one that comes next is the fact that you get a heavy 
double, triple, quadruple dose of it for all your troubles. And that's Mr. Wonderful. I know this is Charlie's favorite album, so why don't you stay first? <laughs> well, actually, before I do that, I just want to add something to yeah. what you just said about Jeremy Spencer. This is one of the challenges that musicians have when they're in, say, blues bands as opposed to pop groups. They are enthralled by certain musicians for their their brilliance. But they struggle to work out how they would fit into a band. I mean, a band is a group. It's a gang. And you can't all be Elmore James. <laughs> and this is one of the problems that Peter Green had. Because if you read how he looked for musicians, he loved people who could do broadly what he could do. But that can be a real challenge. And it's no surprise that the people who more casually joined the band, who were seen as reliable, uh, Mick Fleetwood, John McVie, Christine Perfect, soon, soon to be McVie, those are the people who grow into world-class musicians, but were not touring on their own. Whereas, you know, Green goes and he sees Jeremy Spencer in, in clubs and at festivals, and he says, wow, that guy is an unbelievable slide guitarist. I need to have him here. But that usually doesn't work. You know, supergroups usually don't work. And I, I think this is one of the early stories of, of Fleetwood Mac. They can't find that balance. And people find it hard to fit in alongside uh, Peter Green. How about an yeah. entire horn section plus Christine Perfect? Does that fit in alongside <laughs> Peter Green? <laughs> the string section does. But look, this is evident on Mr. Wonderful, right? Which, which is, it's a mess. Because, because it, it's, there's nothing organic about this record. It's just one paced and it's repetitive and it's too raucous, and it doesn't quite show off Peter Green in the way he needs to. I mean, you, again, you can't put the guy down because his tone, and, and because this was recorded live, and because the sound is better on it in some ways, you really do hear Green's guitar. I, I don't quite know the term for this, Jeff, but Green comes over the top of his notes, especially on that Les Paul in a way that is really difficult to do. Yeah, I don't know how to, um, I don't know how to characterize it either. Yeah. Um and I think you you hear this on Roland Man especially. Um again, you listen and you say that that is Peter Green, that could not be any anyone else. Um but this is a record that just passes me by it's not that it's unpleasant it's not that it's bad it's not that it's out of tune it's not that it's badly played it's not that they're out of time with one another it it's is literally just, the about it is the it, its major failing is that it is the embodiment of generic 12 bar blues is what it is for the most part yeah and and there's four songs that start with that elmore james riff that you mentioned. <laughs> two of them are back to back yes yes you know, it's like when you discover Chuck Berry and you absolutely love that riff that he invented, and but then you realize that it's on seven of his songs and it starts to get a little old. Well, th this is on the same record. <laughs>
was a cute little thing on the first album, and then on this album, what the heck? Is like it's almost like he's in vapor lock or something like that. It's like all he can do is play the Elmore. Like let's just stand him up in front of a microphone <laughs> and go, you know that kind of. Anyway, Scott, what are your thoughts? Uh, I'm in line with you guys. It's a it's a pretty distinct disappointment after the first album and some of the singles that were released in in the interim. The addition of the horns generally doesn't work for me um the two songs back to back what uh dr brown and need your love tonight um they they sound like the same song although i will give them a slight break here guys because on the record where there's two sides to a record they're actually in different sides right so one end side one the other starts side two so it's not quite the cd or streaming experience where you hear one directly after another, you would have to get up and maybe flip the record over to provide your ears with a break. That said, it is the same intro. You oh, I thought, I thought you were going to make an apology for Jeremy Spencer getting credit no. on Need Your Love Tonight. Because like, I've, always, I've always imagined like there being a fantastic YouTube video of him just like <laughs> Vanilla Ice goes. You know what Vanilla Ice goes? Yes. It's like on Queens, it's like da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But on ours, it's like... Da 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 da. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. See, it's different. I can just imagine Jeremy Spencer going, "Okay, so on Doctor Brown, it's da 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 da." But on Need Your Love tonight, it's da 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 da, or something like that. You know, some some like lame excuse making. Right. Um. And, I, you know, Charlie mentioned the production on the first album, and I think, if anything, it's worse on Mr. Wonderful. I think it's a little muddier. Uh, a song like uh, Coming Home, especially, I think is harmed by the production by Mike Vernon on, on this album as well. So that's not doing it any favors. The fact that they are sort of recycling those Elmore James licks, sometimes on, on consecutive songs, doesn't do them any favors. The horn section doesn't do them any favors. There are some sections in which we hear Christine McVie on piano, and I think that's a very interesting addition that, of course, we'll hear far more of on albums to come. So that's maybe the, the uh, um, you know, every uh, uh, cloud is a silver lining. Maybe it's Christine McVie, Christine Perfect at that point, playing on piano. But, um, but there's a whole lot on Mr. Wonderful that essentially is disposable. And even though I mentioned earlier a lot of their stuff is uneven, I wouldn't say much of it is disposable, and you can probably go a long time in your life without hearing essentially anything from Mr. Wonderful. You know, I'll speak up for Love That Burns. I think that that's a great, great slow burn song. It's one of the only ones on the album that really does slow down like that, and it's a steamy song. You know, then you understand for once why they, like, wanted to record it with a room feel. The reason this album sounds so different, you know, like, you know, Charlie was criticizing the production of the first album. I think this one's even worse in some ways. But they were reacting similarly, I think, and said, like, we're not capturing the way this group sounds live. So they just put a microphone or two in the front, and then they recorded it like that. It's a much less, you know, uh, you know, crystal clear sound. It's swampier. On Love That Burns, with that incredible Peter Green guitar solo, for once it works.
but everything else on this record is, is mostly forgettable. Uh, and I think Peter Green agreed. The first thing he did after it was released is he was so hot to get another member in the band because mm-hmm. he wanted a second guitarist to play with. He didn't have Spencer to do that. Spencer would come in and do his bit and then just go stand off stage and, I don't know, <laughs> drink tequila or something like that. And, you know, start sewing dildos onto his pants. He would do that often during shows. It was weird. Fleetwood Mac was a very weird band in the in the in the late '60s. I have to say, as a stage act, they got into a lot of weird like trouble um, for uh, vulgarity, and you wouldn't expect it from Fleetwood Mac, but they do. Um, <laughs> yeah, mostly Spencer's doing. He apparently like would do very ridiculous Jim Morrison like things on stage. But Peter Green needed someone who he could play with, and he'd seen some guy. It was in a small band in England called Boilermaker, called Danny Kirwan. And he really liked the way he played guitar as a lead guitarist. So he said, come join us. And this, I think, was actually a pretty brilliant pick. If Green had ever managed to stay in the band to center and balance Kirwin. But because he left so quickly afterwards, um, you know, I think that was also destined for tragedy in this weird soap opera that is Fleetwood Mac lead guitarists. But I really love what Kirwin brings to Fleetwood Mac. And then this later part of their early green era is just fantastic music this is when green realizes he wants he has higher aspirations musical aspirations than just playing old blues standards he wants to do something that has feeling in it and some of his feelings aren't very happy or are popular or upbeat uh but the first thing that comes out of the new danny kirwin era fleetwood mac is of course one of the happiest and most peaceful songs of all time a number one hit single in the united kingdom no less in fact it's called albatross And uh, to me, it's always been the most South Pacific song of all time. You just listen to those guitars, those twining guitars by Kirwin and Green, and you can hear the waves lapping along with your boat. There's a giant bird with enormous wingspan flying (laughs) above you. You've got a a daiquiri in your hand. Oh, it's 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 an island. It's Jimmy Buffett, Island Paradise stuff, is what it is. It's a beautiful instrumental song. So very curious that it went to the number one spot in the United Kingdom. But I think BBC DJs just loved it to death because it's you could read an entire news broadcast over it and not be interrupted. And it was used by the station forever and ever as their official theme for like various things when they would read the news. Very, uh, I don't know, inspired, but certainly in the same ballpark as the great song Sleepwalk by Santo and Johnny, which has yeah. the same very relaxing, laid-back... Uh, you know, as as Jeff says, kind of a sea setting, a beachy setting. That that's the exact vibe you get from Albatross. And whether or not it's inspired by it or not, it certainly is is in that same in that same league.
that's odd that you you see this as Jimmy Buffett style song because I always assumed that it was Coleridge. Yo, I mean, yeah, yeah, obviously the reference, yeah, the rhyme of the ancient mariner is clearly the reference, but you know that's a grimmer, darker tale. This is obviously a very you know gentle, dreamy, pleasant, happy place. It's dreamy, but is it happy? That's interesting. I don't quite hear it as happy. I don't know. This to me it sounds like music you could be here playing in a Hawaiian movie, you know. Uh, but you know, maybe those are my American sensibilities at play. And either, either way, it was just a, a brilliant stroke to release an instrumental, a popular music, not a blues instrumental, but a pop instrumental as their next single. And how and how impressive is Albatross? It's so impressive that the Beatles stole it a year later and turned it into a track Sun called King. "Sun King," which they yep. put vocals over. But I mean, it, it's it's worth pointing out with this single that this was huge. I mean, this was the moment that everyone knew who they were. This this was a moment they broke out of being a, a London band, a band music fans were interested in. And yeah, they, they were played on BBC television. Uh, their music was used um, as uh, background for um, film. Their uh, record was number one in the charts and they were talked about in pubs and you know this is actually something that surprises peter green because he liked the record but he didn't expect it to do that and it's fairly tragic that he doesn't really get to spend too long um benefiting from from the fruits of albatross uh, in a sense it's his uh, if you excuse the mixed uh avian metaphor it's his swan song <laughs> yeah well you know he's got at least a couple good year year and a half left so they're still on the blue horizon record label mike vernon um but they don't really have anything left i will say this though <clears throat> that before we leave the uh, original fleetwood mac era i would be extremely remiss if i did not recommend a record that is actually called the original fleetwood mac uh, and this is really important to me because, I, you know, I think that the blues era of uh, Fleetwood Mac is wonderful. But I also think that a lot of people aren't going to be able to appreciate it just by going to those first two albums because I think they're flawed. The original Fleetwood Mac, uh, before Kirwan joins, just the four of them, is a compilation that was released, I think, in 71. So it's still fairly early. Uh, just of the original, from outtakes from the earliest sessions for the first album. And it sounds magnificent. The lead guitar soloing on instrumentals like Drifting, uh, you know, even um, Spencer, who has spent so much time criticizing, is playing blues that aren't Elmore James songs. He's playing songs like Mean Old Fireman or singing Can't Afford to Do It, which is obviously Shake Your Money Maker in any other way. Uh, but, you know, Allow Me One More Show is a great song by Spencer. And then you've got you know, Peter Green whipping out some of the finest solos of his career on like Watch Out or Fool No More or Drifting. I recommend this album so strongly to people who are otherwise uninterested in the blues part of Fleetwood Mac's career.
this, of course, takes us to the sort of rock part of Fleetwood Mac's career. They leave Blue Horizon. They record a single one-off with the failing record label Immediate, owned by Andrew Luke Oldham, ex-manager uh, of the Rolling Stones. <laughs> I love these factoids. Um, but it's a really important song. It's called Man of the World. And if there was any one song in Fleetwood Mac's history that showed where Peter Green's mind was at, the very bad place his head was at, it's this song, which is starts as a beautiful just little electric folk tune and then turns into a full-on rock song uh, and ends with him just saying that he wishes he was in love. It's one of Fleetwood Mac's great achievements and uh, very few people even know it exists. I guess I've got that of course it came time to record a new album well who do they sign with they sign with the same label they remain with to this day warner brothers warner reprise and they signed they made their first real album of original music it's all original songs no more covers none of that they're a professional real serious rock band the name of that album is then play on an album which has so many different forms and versions and edits of that it's hard to keep track of what the official one is uh, but I know this is Scott's favorite Fleetwood Mac album, so I want him to go first. Yeah, it's not. And, um, you know, I, I know just based on, you know, reviews and reading about early Fleetwood Mac that this album is held in pretty high esteem. And so uh, I, I thought there was something wrong with me the first time I, I heard it because I certainly, uh, uh, you know, I can understand I might hear, be hearing on the wrong day. And so I, I tried again and, and, and again, and um, each time... I, I don't think it's I don't think it's the worst from this era. And even saying worst for uh, an era like this in Fleetwood Mac is is, is 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 not really saying it's a terrible thing. But man, was I underwhelmed, underwhelmed with essentially all of uh, of of then play on. Uh, uh, Jeremy Spencer doesn't play on this record, though he is officially still a member and would play on the next record. But he is absent from Then Play On. So you have the two guitars here with Green and uh, and Kieran. And, I, okay, so what's my problem with Then Play On? And I try to give it some thought. Uh, I think that on one hand, you know, Peter Green gave half the album away to, to Kieran. Just said, you take it, you write it. And I, I don't think that his songwriting is to the standard that it would get to. Kirwin is, and Jeff and I were talking about this before the, the show, Kirwin is a really interesting writer because he's like, 
he's like 55% successful. I, he, there are some things that he will do in these next few albums that I think are, are really outstanding uh, songs. And there are some in which he, he misses the boat entirely. And, you know, his writing style is, is, is not really based around riffs. You know, it's based around grooves. And, and it's, I think there's a real hit and miss quality to his songwriting, and at least for me, with one exception, I think Without You works really well on Then Play On. Uh, but the rest I'm not quite so sold on. And a good portion, again, in trying to explain why it didn't appeal to me, I, I, I'm hearing, and I'm just, I'm hearing, I don't know if it's a lack of focus or aimlessness. You know, there there are a handful of songs here that essentially, and, and reading later on, it, 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 it was true, were just jams in search of a, a song almost, right? Uh, it's a very, to, to my ear, a very jammy record. And sometimes those things don't resolve themselves in a, in a in a in a way that is appealing to me. songs don't sound as fully formed as they as they might as I might want them to be now I know I'm in the minority on this and I know then play on is considered a high point for this early Fleetwood Mac era but unfortunately I simply can't agree you're not in the minority on this podcast because I agree I hate it <laughs> I do you have a band that made those first two records and then Albatross and gains real interest. At one point, Apple Records invites them to join and they choose instead to go with Reprise, as Jeff says, which was Frank Sinatra's record label. And then they make this. And it's funny because I knew I was going to hate this record by the cover. <laughs> <laughs> I hate the cover. I hate the sound of it. I hate almost all of the songs. It is in Coate, it's messy, it's it's in this horrible twilight zone between being live and being layered. Yes. And they don't yes. know how to layer yet. Yes. Fleetwood Mac eventually becomes extraordinarily good at layering in the studio. But on this, it's not just that it's shallow, it's that it's it's off. It's it's weak. They didn't know what to do. Green doesn't write enough. I'm totally with you on Cohen. Cohen at this point is just not a good enough songwriter. Mm -hmm. He becomes one. I, I have many thoughts about his evolution as a songwriter over his time in the band, but he's just not good enough with, and I think we're on exactly the same page here, Scott, with the exception of Without You, which is a terrific song in part because it's so simple. Mm-hmm. On that song, they're not trying to do what they're doing on the rest of the record. They know they have a good song. 
I think bands instinctively understand when they're working with a good song and they just play it out loud onto tape and mix it. I woke up last night I found he was gone I woke up last night found he was gone I'm so lonely The other song I like is Rattlesnake Shake. It's nothing special, but that always gets my foot tapping. But I don't like it either. And it was interesting to me to learn that at the time, critics didn't especially like it. They thought it was strange. Not just because it didn't fit in with what they thought Fleetwood Mac was about, although that had to be part of it, but because it is strange. But over time, it's become far more critically acclaimed. And like you, I kept playing it and kept playing it to work out what I was missing. And I've concluded that I'm not missing something. Just don't like the damn thing. Maybe we're right. Jeff, change our minds. <laughs> Man, my version of Then Play On that I had growing up didn't even have Without You on it. That's the funny thing. I have... The, I have the one the, that I was familiar with as a kid was the 1990 CD version, which is the only way that then play on should ever be heard. It removes uh, something inside of you and it removes without you, which are songs from far earlier. They're from the blue horizon years. Um, they don't sound like anything else on the album because they're not, they're not recorded in those same sessions. And it also included, Oh, well mm. in the center of the album, which is not a, on the original album. Uh, and then I realized that this is a fantastic album as long as you accept the fact that it's not going to be a blues rock album. Yeah, they do some jamming on the Madge songs, which I like just fine. I don't have a problem with. I also really like Underway as an instrument. Nah. I have an outtake version you of like that. The, that's... You like the songs I, I Underway, I have, I, a 17 minute, I have a 17 minute unedited version of that that I think is even better, okay? And it's the same kind of jamming. And they, that's exactly what they did live on stage, too, during this era, as you know, I'm going to bring up in a moment. But I think there are real serious criticisms to be made of this. I think what you guys are saying about Kierman's songwriting is absolutely true. He has two modes right now. One of them is actually startlingly well developed, and that is his instrumental mode. Because I think my dream. Uh, you know, he'll have one of these in almost every one of his albums. He'll have On My Dream, he'll have Earl Grey, Sunny Side of Heaven. Uh, he's really good at these, these sweet and melodic, almost like music box-like instrumentals that just sort of unfurl themselves. But when he writes his actual songs, they're these slow and dreary and sad and halting, uh, you know, ballads that seem like your rainy day staring outside the window, watching the drops gather against yeah. the pain weird and, and very you know depressing and gloomy which i sometimes like i kind of sometimes i'm in that sort of mood so i i can defend it but maybe not rationally tell me anybody not do you really give a damn 
remember me. I say I tell everybody, do you really give a damn for me? Oh, 'cause I just got to tell you about a thing that's bothering me. I was a rambling pony. I would roll, I would roll, I would roll from town to town. I would not argue this is a classic album. I think this is a very good album. I'd say this is like a three-star album, right? Because I do genuinely love showbiz blues. When Peter Green is howling with that slide guitar, which he's playing, because, of course, he can't get Jeremy to do anything. <laughs> um, and so he's, you know, like, do you really give a damn for me? And he's singing. It's showbiz. And when he's singing to Manon, again, you can just see his brain is sort of like slipping his mind is slipping you know uh, you're not slipping but revealing what he's really obsessed with during this entire era it has to be noted i hadn't mentioned it but peter green you know is probably already troubled you know probably had you know latent psychological issues um but you know drug use is never healthy for that sort of thing and especially the use of lsd is, is never a good thing if you have sort of you know latent uh, you know, psychotic or uh, schizophrenic issues. Uh, and, of course, that's what was going around this scene at the time. And Green was becoming increasingly obsessed with the hollowness of rock stardom. And he wanted to give all the bands money away. You know, Mick Fleet would recall him t- telling stories about, like, you know, Peter came to me and said, we, we have to give all our money away. And, and Mick was like, well, Peter, I want to live. Like, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I want to be able to, like, you know, pay my bills and, you know, maybe enjoy, like, a nice car or a vacation. You know, so no, I'm sorry. You know, and that's the frame of mind he was in. That's where a song like Showbiz Blues comes from. That's where a song like Before the Beginning comes from. That's where a song like Rattlesnake Shake. No, that's not where a song like Rattlesnake Shake comes from. <laughs> Which is, of course, nobody mentioned it. It's another great five-fingered salute to jerking it from rock music. Uh, I know this guy. His name is Mick. He don't care if he ain't got no chick. He do the shake. And he jerks away the blues. It's not subtle, but it's a fun song. I don't know how you can't like Rattlesnake Shake as a song. lot of wonderful music on this but yes it's slow it's you know it's main highlights as songs are not rock songs 
the instrumentals are lengthy, uh, but I think are good. But it, it, it's what you shouldn't do is come in expecting this big magnum opus of hardcore blues rock that summarizes everything from the last few years. You're getting something very different. I, I just want something that I can put my hand around. I can't grasp onto this record or the songs yeah. on it, except without you and Rattlesnake Shake. I just, I don't know no pun intended. where the grooves and indentations are. It doesn't, it yeah, doesn't no, I connect. Understand. You know what? I understand and I respect that. And I, you know, <clears throat> as far back as I can remember reading like reviews online from like the online music reviewing community about this album, this, the opinions split exactly along these lines mine versus yours. So, like, you know, yours is a very common opinion, uh, even though you're wrong. And it's like one of those things where it, it's embarrassing to be on the 49% side <laughs> of a 51 49 divide, but you're still, lo- you're still wrong. That was a great two step insult there in that. Yours is a very common opinion and also wrong. <laughs> the two worst things to have. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, you know, if you were worried about Peter Green leading Fleetwood Mac and putting out albums like this, well, you wouldn't have to worry too much longer. No, that's why I called Albatross his swan song, because this doesn't exist, this record. Oh, well, I think, okay, but what does exist is his, these last two singles that they did uh, sure, before sure. Peter Green left, and then also the live stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, they, play, they, they played a blues jam in Chicago in 69. Kirwan was there, and it's actually really fun. It's a two-CD set. You know, if you really like listening to Fleetwood Mac, who knew how to play the blues, play with a lot of blues greats from chess, then you're going to really enjoy, you know, that stuff. But I wouldn't call it essential. What I would call essential are the single that came out around then play on and the one that came out almost immediately afterward uh again if you want to know where peter green was thinking these days just look at his lyrics oh well parts one and two part two is on the flip side of the single uh part one is you'll immediately recognize it as as the oh that's where the black dog riff came from (laughs) song uh, but it's much more than that, and of course the lyric is as doomy as they get. You know, you know, you, you know. I talk to God. I hope He understands. He says, "Sit by me, and I'll be your guiding hand." But don't ask me what I think of you. I might not give the answer that you want me to, uh, which is you know basically the way I think Green felt God felt about him at that time. Uh, but that acoustic guitar riff, that circular acoustic guitar riff, and the way the band just shadows him and then explodes into chaos and then falls into silence. Uh, the the mastery of dynamics and rhythms on that singles or why it was just so immediately memorable at the time and remained one of the very few early Fleetwood Mac songs that Lindsey Buckingham would play all the way up through their live career. About the shape I'm in, I can't sing, I ain't pretty, and my legs are thin. But don't ask me what I think of you, I might not give the answers that you want me to. Ooh, yeah. 
great song and has been covered a number of times. Uh, one of the first times I heard it, I think, was, although it was already familiar to me, so I must have heard it in other places, but uh, the uh, Jimmy Page and the Black Crows album, Live at the Greek, they did a, a version of Oh Well, and uh, Jimmy Page playing Oh Well, which, of course, he also played Black Dog. Uh, yeah, it sounded really good. I, I, I think the influence of Oh Well is slightly understated, it's a sort of, you know, bluesy, proto-metal combination. Um, you know, the uh, not just, you know, we talk a lot about the 90s grunge and the soft, loud dynamics, but this is, you know, silence and loud dynamics. Uh, those vocals with essentially no accompaniment, which uh, which Black Dog would also steal. Uh, and then the part two with sort of the, the, what the Spanish guitar portion, depending on what what version you have, there are some OL uh, singles or some OL songs that will tack on a portion of part two on the back of part one to make like a three minute and 12 second long song. But there is a whole five and a half minute long uh, actual OL part two where that spanish guitar is sort of flushed out a little bit more uh, you know if it's if it's peter green's uh, true swan song uh, to steal charlie's term he couldn't have got out in a much better way than than oh well yeah i don't think i can add too much to this other than to say that it's just a terrific terrific song and it is a great example of the influence that fleetwood mac had on led zeppelin i've never read any uh, evidence for that I, i'm i'm sure there is some but you know it's not just it's not just that song you you can hear it by the time that uh, led zeppelin have gone stratospheric they're absorbing this and oh well is a is a wonderful example of it and oh well is interesting too because nothing from uh then play on makes it onto the greatest hits Nothing makes it onto the compilations. Nothing makes it onto classic rock radio. But oh well, sure as hell does. Well, you guys are wrong in your, your maligning of then play on. But if you really want Peter Green's true swan song, we've been talking about it for the last two, couple things here. Here is Peter Green's true swan song. And that, of course, is the last single that he played on with the band called the Green Monolishi. Monolishi is hippie slang for money. So, lest there be any doubt about what uh, Peter Green considers to be the root of all evil, it is the love of money. This is during an era where he had taken to wearing like white flowing robes, caftans with his long, you know, scraggly hair. He looked basically like Jesus Christ on stage. He's a big Jewish guy with his long flowing hair, wearing white like robes that sound like they came right out of Jerusalem, circa you know, twenty three A.D. Uh, clearly at the end of his rope and you can hear it in every single note of paranoia that drips from this song every single note of it from the opening guitar slashes to that lumbering riff that does sound like satan himself (laughs) and the way green sings that song he actually sings like he's frying in hell and like, you know, his soul is being judged right now. It's such a creepy and weird and haunted performance. And, you know, if it weren't for the fact that I know that this doesn't have a happy ending, I would salute Peter Green for like really getting inside the mind of somebody who's, who's really suffering, you know, a dark night of the soul. Except this is really Peter Green's dark night of the soul on record. A shut a green man with a two-pronged crown. 
trying is up, all you're bringing is down. Just taking my love and slipping away, leaving me here just trying to keep from following you. This is a thing, Jeff, that used to happen to bands, but doesn't seem to anymore, where the original leader of the band would go crazy, <laughs> have to leave the band. The band would then rotate its members, spend a few years not quite sure what it was doing, and then become unbelievably famous. I mean, the other obvious this example the, is Pink Floyd. I was right. about to say, they saw Pink Floyd do it, and they said, if they could do it, we could yeah. do it. <laughs> I, I've never heard of that happening today but in the in the late 60s this used to happen to bands it's peculiar scott i guess i mean not quite on the same level you'd also throw in um you know genesis peter gabriel didn't go crazy but certainly the leader of the band the creative core peter uh, gabriel lyrically. didn't go crazy but his record executives <laughs> asked him if he had <laughs> that's a question for a different episode i suppose yeah, um so yeah, I, I um, uh, the, the, again in terms of influence, these last two songs certainly point Fleetwood Mac in a direction that would influence the likes of Zeppelin, right? Green Monolishi, along with Oh Well, really plays to the heavier, harder side of what they were doing, and uh, and certainly the Peter Green state of mind at this time too. But uh, the way that those guitars play with each other and sort of shriek uh and it was successful too you know oh well did well i think uh green monolisha went to number 10 on the charts it's not as if peter green was exiting a sinking ship it really was a uh, as we say these days a, a mental health issue that prompted a departure i mean not only was it not a sinking ship they had just recorded what uh what i actually would argue would have gone down as one of the greatest live albums of all time in rock. It had, had it been released at the time. That would have been the album that these days is known as like Live in Boston or Live at the Boston Tea Party. It's a, a series of shows from, I believe, March or April of 1970, or February of 1970. Um, you, it's a three-disc set. Uh, all you really need to do is get the first disc. You can listen to the first disc of that, so eight songs. Uh, and then you will immediately understand why this band was so exciting and, and why the interplay of Peter Green on guitar and Danny Kirwan on guitar was so exciting and why future prospects for them seemed so bright. There are songs here that were never released that they would have been, you know, it would have been magnificent for them to record. Only You by Kirwan is just this propulsive rock song that was revealing the style that he would succeed at throughout the rest of the band's career, which is playing these sort of grooving, nagging riffs rather than trying to write little, like, you know, twee ditties like When You Say. You know, and then you listen to even Jeremy Spencer. My God, he doesn't embarrass himself. He sings I Can't Hold Out and Got to Move, and he does great. But the band coming together to jam on songs like Rattlesnake Shake or Green Monolishi 
uh, or Black Magic Woman for that matter. It just shows you how powerful the group could be live. Say goodbye to Peter Green, who, the story goes, he uh, apparently was abducted by a weird German LSD cult while the band was touring Europe. He was dosed so heavily that he wasn't able to even function normally for like several days afterwards, and then his mind rapidly deteriorated after that. This is not a joke. This is part of the story of Fleetwood Mac. This is the version of it that I have had handed down to me. Uh, he finally just lost it all at around May of 1970 and quit on the spot. And they just couldn't get him to come and play with the band. What on earth do you do? Well, as I said, it worked for Pink Floyd. Uh, I guess we'll, we'll just uh, continue playing on. Uh, we'll then play on. And uh, they come up with the weirdest album that any major group, one of the weirdest albums, there are many contenders, that any major group has released in a very long time, which is an album dominated by Jeremy Spencer's weird sensibilities called Kiln House. And when I say weird sensibilities, there isn't a lick of Elmore James anywhere on this record, my friend. This is all about the 50s. Well, goodbye, world. It's sad but true. Got a deck with a hangman I have to leave you I shut my door early Three times or more The reason I'm going Is good on the floor The nights are so lonely the days are so long I've been the jailhouse Cause I see I've done wrong I don't see I'm sorry I just see I'm sore The reason What do you guys think of the weird rebirth, you know, next stage? What do you want to call it? A Fleetwood Mac, a Jeremy Spencer project. I got to tell you, I actually like it quite a bit, which should not be surprising, perhaps based on some of my other proclivities musically. Uh, I, I had uh, I explained this to Jeff in one of my uh, texts. It's, it's Fleetwood Mac as if infiltrated by Dave Edmonds. Um, and that that actually appeals to me. Now, 
up front, it's unsustainable. You're not going to have a you know a lengthy career sort of aping and, uh, and 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 doing homages to retro '50s American rock and roll, which is what a whole lot of Kiln House is. But as sort of a as a as sort of a one off as a as a regrouping album, because with Peter Green gone, you got a four piece essentially: Fleetwood, McVie, Spencer, and Kerwin. And then Christine Perfect, who I'm not sure at this time she's married yet, but, you know, Christine McVie, we should probably just call her Christine McVie to make things simpler at this point. Uh, she plays on this album, too. And this is, you know, this is Jeremy Spencer being able to sort of play without the influence of Peter Green um, and, and do the things he wants to do. Uh, there's, a, there's a country, essentially, parody on this song. I mean, really a country song. Uh, there's a uh, old cover, uh, Hi Ho Silver, which is a uh, Honey Hush with under a different name, Big Joe Turner uh, cover. Uh, it takes some, some of that loose, jammy, laid back feel of the last album that I didn't like, but actually sharpens the focus a little. I, I like it so much better here. And the Kerwin songs, I think these are both Kerwin songs. Station Man and Jewel Eye Judy. Jewel Eye Judy is the is one of the singles from the album, which flopped. But I, I think there is a pretty significant leap forward in his writing here, Kerwin's writing too, on both of those songs. Station Man is one of my favorite songs from this era of Fleetwood Mac. Absolutely. Uh, this really stellar electric guitar work in a laid-back groove. I Really good song, and, and Jewel Eye Judy, even though uh, audiences didn't love it, I think it's great. Kerwin sings this one, uh, just sort of lopes along in the verses, and this crashing chorus comes rushing in uh, on that song. Uh, he, he contributes a beautiful instrumental in Earl Grey. I mean, it's not entirely the Spencer show here. Kerwin, I think, actually gets a couple of really good shots in here. Um, uh, the, uh, first song of the album, This Is The Rock. I mean, it's complete Elvis, Sun Records, retro vibe. Mick Fleetwood, powerful six, I don't know if he's 6'10", powerful, tall, large Mick Fleetwood is playing this brush, you know, he's playing brushes on the drums. Again, I, I am in no way arguing that this is a sustainable path to popularity, although it did reach 69 in the U.S., which I think was their highest uh, charting album to date. Uh, it's not something they could repeat, but as a again, as a one-off, as a piece of sort of coming together after losing a, a band leader. Look, I like it a lot. Mick Fleetwood loved, by the way, playing the brushes on This Is The Rock. He loved that sort of mimicry. Uh, I mean, that was actually one of the strengths of Fleetwood Mac in general, is that they could play anything, that rhythm section. 
ultimately could end up playing in any style. That's why they're the mo- one of the most professional sounding rhythm sections of, in all of pop history. This is the Yeah, as for this album, I enjoy it. But it's so slight. You know how Charlie said that he had difficulty getting his hand around then play on? Well, in a similar way, I have difficulty getting my hands around Kiln House. In that I know that there's quality here. Uh, this is the Rock is a fun song. It's just fun rockability, sun rockability. I, I also really love, uh, you know, the, the stupidity of blood on the floor. Um, I love Tell Me All the Things That You Do, which is yeah. you know, one of Kirwin's yeah. big contributions. That big snapping, like, do do that's what I mean when I say Kirwan is really good at coming up with these very repetitive groove riffs that'll just nag at you. They stick in your ear. Um, I also really like the fact that Christine, uh, Christine Perfect, it, although soon, either think soon to become McVie or maybe she had just become McVie, is basically a full-time member of the band at this point. She's not credited, but she's almost on every single song. And designed the cover. Yeah, and yes, yes, that that very beautiful cover, almost exotic and almost Japanese looking in some way. I love the cover of Kiln House, but the music itself just seems weird and unfocused. And it it seems like a, a fitting tribute, if you want to call it that, to well, what Jeremy Spencer's creative talents were fully capable of. I mean, I'm not making an unfair statement. I think when I say that that what Spencer notably lacked was any sense of true creativity. All of these songs are pastiches. I mean, Buddy's song, which I give him credit for having, you know, they, I think they gave the songwriting credit to Ms. Holly, but as well they ought to, because, you know, I mean, how many songs by Buddy Holly does it reference? There's, it's Rave On, uh, you, know, you know, Maybe Baby, you know, Peggy Sue. It's all set to the tune of Peggy Sue Got Married. So, yeah, you better not try to take a songwriting credit on that. But while it's playing, it's fun. <laughs> just like it's trying to to hold on to nothing though it's so insubstantial that's my problem with kiln house it's 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 so light that it just blows away so spencer wakes up and he's shaken stevens all of a sudden he's arvin <laughs> stardust and it's odd the word parody is the right one i really like this is the rock but 
that slapback vocal is straight out of Sun Studios, and consciously so. I like Blood on the Floor, but it reminds me of the band Mud. Mud did 50s parodies in the 80s. So it's reminding me of another <laughs> band that is doing a parody of the 50s. Or, or Steel Panther doing parodies of like, you know, <laughs> you know, cock rock metal songs. And then Buddy's song is a literal parody. It's a, it's a pastiche. Yeah. The contributions from Co and I still mostly don't like, except Tell Me All The Things You Do, which I think is just terrific. That I can listen to on repeat. for me I don't like Earl Grey I don't like Station Man Koan just hasn't quite got it yet as far as I'm concerned but once again there is a a foretelling here of what is to come he's obviously enormously talented but as a songwriter there's nothing to, to grab onto and then Hi-Ho Silver, which was written by neither Kerwan nor Spencer, but is performed by Spencer, is great. I just think that that absolutely fizzes. It's odd because on this album, I kept thinking of other bands. Yeah. It's not just Shake and Stevens. And in fact, I kept thinking of other bands that hadn't been put together yet. For example... One together, if you change it slightly, it sounds a little bit like Dire Straits. And I, <laughs> I would think, I never made that connection. Just listen to it and imagine it being recorded a little bit differently on slightly different equipment with Mark Knopfler playing guitar. <laughs> and that's not a criticism. I'm a huge Dire Straits fan, as it happens. But it does suggest to me, even though I enjoy listening to the album, because how can you not? It's like having a Diet Coke. There's nothing really there. <laughs> It just suggests to me that they didn't really quite know where they were going. And this, in my estimation, is the, is the last moment where they are a, a, a strange, inchoate band, for better or for worse. From, from here on out, they make their climb towards yeah. 1975. 
And this doesn't really fit into either the first stage mm-hmm. or into the second stage right. that is coming. Um, right. So I, I, I'm much more fond of it than then play on, but I also perversely enough view it as something of, of a throwaway. Yeah, I think you know, you know, Jeremy Spencer probably didn't know what to do do about it either. I I, I think of these people, all these these succession of leaders, who sort of fell by the wayside, who ducked out of the band, or basically made themselves, you know, fired themselves, got themselves fired on purpose. That's, that's the way I feel like Kirwan did it. Um, we're all thrust into leadership and weren't prepared for it. And what you see in a lot of these albums is them sort of trying to figure out how to handle, you know, shouldering the responsibilities of songwriting when you're just not that good at writing that many songs that quickly. Peter Green was so desperate for, you know, somebody who would do that with him that he, he found Kirwan. All right. And Kirwan was actually growing underneath his tutelage, but then Peter Green's like, adios. And so now Kirwan has to do this. Well, Spencer tries first, but then <clears throat> Spencer's kind of like a dead end because, you know, all, all he can do is write these pastiches, these ancient, these old songs. He can't look forward. And I think he's stressed about it, too. He's been the, the band's frontman actually as far back as the beginning of the group, if you believe Peter Green's account of it. Uh, and he doesn't know if this is what he wants to be doing with his life. So he does what the, any responsible rock and roll band member would do which is that he calls a band meeting and he says before they're about to go on tour that he would like to quit and you know he brings his solicitor in to wind up all the band's affairs orderly and neatly no of course what he does is he disappears an hour and a half before a gig (laughs) and is and ends up being found like a couple days later that weekend at a religious christian cult called the children of god where he remains to this day really he remains there, there. He's, he's, i don't know if he's living in that space but he's a member of the children right to this day he never left uh that is something that is just as i said you thought the story couldn't get any more dramatic oh it gets way more dramatic than this jeremy spencer their lead guitarist their lead singer he just dropped out in the middle of a tour and joined a christian cult folks Yep, and we're not even halfway there. Um, that leaves them completely bereft of options because Spencer was half of their onstage you know, vibe anyways when he was doing all his various cover things. So Peter Green actually agreed to rejoin the band for a little while, play with them live. I think he said, like, you know, we're only going to jam on something like Green Monolishi or something like that. Then they get home and like, what the hell are we supposed to do? So well, this is another weird way to get hired into a band. They hire Bob Welch before they hear a note of his music. <laughs> Somebody just brought it. It's like, this guy's made a demo album. And Mick Fleetwood said, well, describe the songs to me. So it sounds like this. They talked with him. They got along with him. They hired him to play in Fleetwood Mac before they heard a note of his songs. Um, But it turned out to be a very fortuitous hire because it's what stabilized Fleetwood Mac. Bob Welch is is different from the rest of the members of this band as it possibly be. He is, oh, he was the proto hippie Southern California weirdo before that became a, a central focus of Fleetwood Mac's music. Uh, he was living in Paris at the time. He was an expat, I think. Um, his dad, I believe, had been in Hollywood or something like that. He had a formal musical education. Um, <clears throat> but he was sort of what you would consider the classic embodiment of Southern California. I'm thinking of like Joaquin Phoenix in the Thomas Pinchon 
movie that was made novel that was made into a movie. Can you remember the name of that film, Charlie? I can't, but I know what you're referring to. Ah, it's slipping my mind right now. But the Southern California, like, zonked out, you know, hippie crystals, you know, like, we have to adjust our chakras and get in touch with the elements and, you know, be environmentalists and care about our love vibrations and stuff like that. That whole scene. Inherent vice. Inherent vice. Yes, he is the main character in Inherent Vice. He certainly does not look as handsome as the main character in Inherent Vice. That was what Bob Welch brought to Fleetwood Mac. Aside from that, he could also write the hell out of songs. I think he's a really underrated songwriter. And the first album he goes out here is with Future Games. And what else did they do? Well, they brought back an old friend. Christine Perfect is now Christine McVie, and she's also now a full member of the band, contributing her own songs and she ironically enough is going to be the voice that is the longest tenured one from this show onwards uh but this is their first album as sort of instead of this weird ramshackle fleetwood mac like uniquely fleetwood mac thing now they're a professional pop band making weird and interesting somewhat prog rock songs and i love this album i consider it to be really underrated i don't really think it gets much attention or praise these days but i think future games is a huge step forward And I think it's appropriately titled, not just because it breaks with the previous album, which was a throwback, but because it both looks forward to what Fleetwood Mac is becoming, but also anticipates quite a lot of the 1970s pretty early. Yeah, 1971. It starts in San Francisco. I mean, Woman of a Thousand Years is a song that is placed in tone and in atmosphere in San Francisco. It sounds like Crosby, Stills, and Nash. It sounds like Simon and Garfunkel. It is a hippie song, and it is a departure from anything they have ever done before. And so is most of the rest of the record. And this is, for me, the moment when Cohen becomes a terrific songwriter. Because he writes that one. He writes the... Sands of Time, track that opens side, side two. two. Uh, that that again moves them on. He writes sometimes, which sounds to me like the Allman Brothers Band, America, Jackson Brown, that kind of feel again of the seventies rather than of the fifties or the late nineteen sixties or of blues.
Then you have Welch, and the, the title track, you know, again, it's remarkably mature for this group. It's remarkably sophisticated. Uh, Future Game sounds to me like a, a Dave Gilmore solo record. It does, doesn't it? It yeah. has that, that, that lumber, that confident lumber. Like the, they, they are comfortable enough in their skins to go as slowly as they do with that song, because that's what makes it so impressive. It just this this giant juggernaut that rolls musically with 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 the beat that Mac and Fleetwood lay down on that song. Yeah, but yeah, you're right. It's like what is Fleetwood Mac? This is a blues band, and now they're playing what is functionally prog rock. It's ridiculous to, to see, see how far they've traveled from 1967 to 71. How good it is and the only low moments for me and i say this as a big fan of hers is the, the christine mcvee parts because i don't think she's got it yet she's swapped <laughs> not quite good enough songwriting duties with co and and then there's what a shame which is the instrumental which is in my estimation absolute garbage but yes. in their defense was put on there because the record company told them they needed an eighth track refused to release the record with only seven and so they rushed back into the studio and put that together for contractual reasons uh, and then sent it over and pressed the disc and the rest is history. But this is a really, really good record. It's a really mature record. It's a totally different record than they've made before. Their songwriters are coming into their own. The influence of Welch is obvious. It's beautifully produced. Um, uh, there aren't many uh, downsides to this one. 
note this is also the time in which their fortunes in the UK and the US start uh, uh, bifurcating. The, the, the UK, uh, this does not chart in the UK, and, and none of their albums, so the next few albums, would chart anywhere in the UK. And yet in the US, this hits the, hot, uh, the top 100, and they begin to pile up some success with future albums, of course, leading through the uh, leading to the big big breakthroughs. And part of it is because, uh, as Charlie mentioned, the songwriting chops are getting better. Even adding McVie's song, I will I will agree with Charlie. I, I think "Show Me a Smile" is is somewhat slight. Uh, I think "Morning Rain" though is a pretty well developed Christine McVie song. And as he mentioned a few times too, it sounds like nothing they had done to date driven by the piano and keys of McVie, uh, and, and, and using the piano as almost a percussive instrument on Morning Rain. I, I think that's a pretty good uh, start point for Christine McVie's songwriting in this band, Morning Rain. They retain some of the, uh, uh, the longer, you know, jammier tendencies. And Future Games is, what, eight minutes? Sands of Time is, is seven minutes long. But Welch does bring this new angle, this sort of R&B, almost jazzy feel in his songwriting and his playing, which helps to not prop up, but helps to add a real nice element to a whole lot of these songs uh, mentioned Future Games, which uh, which is a really great Welch track. Uh, sometimes, too, uh, Charlie mentioned uh, that country piano, the pick guitar. It's one of those songs. It, I I draw some parallels between the way that Welch approaches his guitar playing and the way Buckingham approaches his guitar playing. There are many moments here when you can sort of close your eyes and hear that finger-picking style of Lindsey Buckingham uh, on these tracks. And no, it's not, of course. Great point. It's Bob Welch playing, and sometimes it's definitely one of those tracks where uh, there's almost a through line, (laughs) one of the rare through lines in Fleetwood Mac members. Even though numbers are changing, that that style is retained when Buckingham comes aboard. Uh, This is a very good... I I don't think it's a great album necessarily. uh, Yes, What a Shame is a total throwaway. I think Lay It All Down is just sort of a basic bluesy groove that doesn't leave quite uh, an impression on me. But it at least gives the band this uh, new way forward and and a template they can work on. That Kiln House, as much as I do like that one, was, was not a way forward. Future Games gives them an idea of what they could do. Hold on, hold up for a second here now, Scott. I respect Lay It All Down as the model track of rock and roll biblical prophecy. Uh, because, listen, you know, some of these people 
all these all these stories that Moses has told are, are prophecies good and prophecies bad are coming to pass. Uh, when I talked about Bob Welch being like a bit of a zonked out, like hippie mystic weirdo, this is exactly what I meant with the song <laughs> like Lay It All Down, where his, his reading of the Bible is, is, is remarkable uh, and uh, truly, truly faithful to the scripture uh, in a way that the Pope would certainly approve of. Uh, at the end of the day, you can't you can't beat those horns, though, which is funny. This is not something you would ever do. I guess they did play on uh, Mr. Wonderful, but this is a very different type of horn section that you hear on a song like Lay It All Down. These, these giant horns that are like soul horns. And so you get that R&B pumping. tumbling ending to future games that you talked about and that I actually already mentioned once as well is to me an absolute highlight of the album where Bob is singing like, I know I'm not the only one and they're just doing it's like I think of the giant wheel tumbling over and over and over through the atmosphere in Kubrick's 2001 it has that same kind of majesty and then I think to myself this is from Fleetwood Mac that's why I'm really impressed with this album impressed with the shift in moods. Remember, almost all of these songs were styles that they'd never done before. And it doesn't feel hackneyed. It doesn't feel like they're like faking it. Like they play that sort of gentle acoustic, you know, San Francisco style wash of sound on Woman of a Thousand Years with like, you know, effortlessness. Just Kirwan and Welch seem to work really well playing with one another. For once, it's not like, you know, you know an oil and water issue like with Spencer. And uh, I can't say enough good things about Sometimes, which I think is, is actually maybe one of Kirwan's greatest songs. I just love that sort of loping country gait, the gentleness and seeming inevitability of its chord progressions. There's nothing very profound about the lyrics. It's just a simple dopey love lyric. But I love that chord progression, and I love the way Christine Perfect's piano comp- dominates the song, too. You've got her, her piano, and then Kirwan's uh, very gentle guitar playing on it that guided just through about five and a half minutes of gentle beauty a song that no one ever talks about it an album that no one ever talks about i think the only album that people usually talk about if they mention anyone like one that i comes up more often than any of the others for me is the next fleetwood mac album what where for once hey stability in a lineup it's the same guys <laughs> we've got two two albums in a row with the same group of people and this is 1972's bear trees what do you guys think of the one with the with the gray dusty album cover?
This is a progression uh, from from future games. And again, um, there are songs by Christine McVie here that I think are just not quite good enough, right? Not quite where she would get to, but... Oh, I think she takes up a real level here. Yeah, I I think she is developing her voice, right? She, She writes a very specific type of song and a welcome type of song. That works in the uh, in sort of the arrangement of, of bare trees. Um, I, I I think I think I would say this is their most consistent songwriting yet, top to bottom, from from all contributors, from Kerwin, from Welch, and, and the McPhee songs too. And this is an album in which I hear, and part of it might be production choices, but I really do hear that rhythm section of McFleetwood and John McPhee. Um, asserting themselves. There, there's a warmer production on here that would stay with them for quite a while, you know, as you get toward the more uh, California pop sort of style, the California pop singer-songwriter style that, that, that would uh, slowly be adopting here. That warmer production really brings out that rhythm section and the strength that they have playing together, as they had been since the very start. I also want to mention very quickly how fast they are recording. We, we, we've spent, oh, whatever it is now, uh, an hour and 45 minutes talking. We've barely moved, like, what, three years? <laughs> three and a half years? Uh, we're still March of 1972. Uh, they are really working at a fast pace to put out these albums. Um, so on the songs, um, you know, McVie's uh, song, Spare Me a Little of Your Love, I think that is the, uh, the better one here. And maybe the closest approximation early on here to the sound that they would adopt uh, once Buckingham Nicks would arrive. That rising melody of the opening line really grabs you. Homeward Bound is a, is an odd one because as I listen, I hear her almost toughening up her voice. And she is such a high, she's so high, uh, such a high register, and she almost brings it down to a to a gruffer sort of uh, delivery in Homeward Bound, and it's weird. Uh, it's a little weird. Uh, Bear Trees, the Kerwin track, that's one that I had heard before really diving into a lot of this era of Fleetwood Mac, and I think is a is, uh, kind of a prototypical Kerwin song, meaning it is really built on that groove, that repetitive groove, very clear in Bear Trees, very good song.
then you have one uh, from Welch, which is excellent here, and he'd have success with it later on as a solo artist called Sentimental Lady. Just an extremely strong melody. There's a wonderful pre-chorus. It's a pretty song. And look, uh, as we move forward here through these next few albums, I think that's a word description that uh, uh, certainly I'll be using more often. You go from you know Peter Green and this blues, Boogie, Elmore James, right? And, and I think especially here on Bare Trees, that transition uh, begins into which you describe a Fleetwood Mac song as being pretty, uh, being beautiful. And as Charlie mentioned earlier, being layered, the way they're starting to produce things. It's not quite here. I think it begins maybe on Penguin, the next one. But they're starting to understand what they can do in studio. And uh, it's probably a byproduct of actually having, as Jeff mentioned, the same lineup for consecutive albums. Uh, How they can complement each other uh, in studio and really bring out the best of these well-written songs. I see this as essentially part two of Future Games. I, I think they have the same relationship as Rubber Soul does to Revolver. Same lineup, as Scott says, great recording. I'm trying to think of a non-Abbey Road Studios band that sounds as good as Fleetwood Mac does that early. The only one I could come up with is Supertramp. It's a stunning recording the layering is getting sophisticated. The sound is mature. There is, at points, a, a slight tendency to drift into music when they get unfocused because there's so much sheen on it. But this is really an album that benefits from the same things as Future Games and suffers from the same things as Future Games. It benefits enormously from Cohen's writing, which by this point is fantastic. Uh, Child of Mine, fabulous track, Sunny Side of Heaven, I think it's excellent. Bear Trees is the best track on the record. And Dust, you know, with Dust, we're back to San Francisco again. We're back to Crosby, Stills and Nash. I, uh, I hate Sentimental Lady. Oh, I was about to say, oh, I was going to save my ding on Sentimental Lady. I hate it. End. I know it, this is not a, a Cohen track, of course. It's Welch. I hate it. Okay, you, you, maybe you would love it if you thought of Sentimental Lady the way that I always have, which is as being sung by Kermit the Frog on the Muppets TV series. <laughs> Sitting on a log, 
you are here with me. It was a, you are here with more. He sounds God, Bob Welch. For, he sounds, you know, Scott said pretty. I was about to say, oh, pretty nerdy, you mean. <laughs> he sounds pretty nerdy on that song. It doesn't really matter. I love it anyway. I, the song itself is good. The performance is good. Really good I, with the rest of the band. I think it's labored. It, it strikes me as labored. I, I can't get past that. Um, and then again, Christine McVie, she's just not quite there. The the songs are not quite there. They don't hang together. But this is a really, really good record. Um, it, it, it's a record you can play over and over again. And it is bizarre to me, <laughs> not to not to spoil what's coming next, but that Kerwan reaches this point, this 18-year-old kid who joins the band at Peter Green's insistence, who plays various roles in the band, who matures, who grows up in the band, who takes over the band, essentially. He writes half the tracks on this record. He's the main guitarist. And then he falls apart completely falls apart there, there's no great future for him this is his last moment with the band but he went out on a high note it, it it's not inexplicable if you understand you know how kirwin always just had this very shy demeanor on stage he could play wonderfully but you know he wasn't like big flash guy get up on the stage and jump around that was spencer's job he was the one who was the huge extrovert. Uh, I think Kieran really didn't like having to be like the leader of the band, which is why he wanted, you know, you know, Christine McVie to get in there. That's why he was happy to have Welch in there. Um, they didn't really all write together in any way, however. And Kirwan uh, had these wonderful riff-based songs, and all of them do work. I mean, I think Child of Mine is great. But, yeah, I think we're all in agreement about Bear Trees, the title track, being the best in this style. There's an outtake that should be heard called Trinity from these sessions. It was first on the box set, the chain box set. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a bonus track on the reissue of the CD itself these days. Uh, Trinity is great. It's just got basically scattered out nonsense lyrics for the most part. Uh, and it's just him cycling through like four different entertaining guitar riffs uh, and never figuring out how to create a song out of it, which is his frustration during this era, which is why when Sunny Side of Heaven comes together, uh, it's it's really so wonderful to hear. That's, I think, by far Kirwan's greatest instrumental. I think McVie does a better job than you guys or either of you are giving her credit for. 
I really like Homeward Bound, even though it's tough and weird. And I just like that. I was listening to my listen to it at the uh, earlier today and thinking to myself, yeah, this could have been played by you know the Buckingham next era Fleetwood Mac, and it would have fit in just fine. And I really like Spare Me a Little of Your Love. I generally don't like Christie's big ballads from this pre-Buckingham next era at all. Uh, Spare Me a Little of Your Love is one of the very few exceptions. You must know you have certain charms And I feel the time is right So spare me a little Spare me a little Spare me a little of your love Spare me a little Spare me a little Spare me a little of your love There are no exceptions whatsoever however <clears throat> on the next Fleetwood Mac album which is one of the few unmitigated disasters of their entire career in my opinion yeah. and, and such a disaster can only come about when your lead guitar your lead guitarist and uh, co-lead singer and songwriter gets so ruinously drunk one day before you go on stage that he smashes up the dressing room and his instrument and refuses to go on stage which is exactly what Danny Kierwin did uh, and then what Danny Kierwin also did is criticize the band for trying to, you know, stumble their way through the set without him there to help out uh, <laughs> when they got back off stage. And at that point, you know, it was over. Fleetwood was just like, you're out, you're fired. And it almost, as I said, I feel like it was a self-firing. Like, you don't behave like that unless you're just in a spiral. You're completely out of control and you want to get fired. But anyways, there you go. <clears throat> the first three Fleetwood Mac front men, Peter Green, Jeremy Spencer, Danny Kierwin, all three of them are now gone, and it's only 1972 in the story. Uh, they hastily get some guys, practically is the way I can put it, some guys to come and join them. Uh, one of them as a lead singer is a guy named, uh, what is it, Dave, Dave Walker. Walker. And he plays harmonica, and he doesn't sticks out like a sore thumb, doesn't flit, fit in with the band at all. I, I can't believe um, they thought it would work. I, I, it is such an odd marriage. It just, just he, he is such a st uh, sore thumb, sticking out like a sore thumb. If, if he was playing an instrument, it might make sense, right? If he was contributing as a core member of the band instrumentally, then giving him some songs because he's there, he's in the band, fine. But this is like like... Did you feel like they needed an unnecessary lead singer? He's Poochie. <laughs> he was the Poochie of Fleetwood Mac, who suddenly, after one album, disappeared to return to his home planet and died halfway there. Um, so you won't be hearing much about that guy in the story of Fleetwood Mac. You will be hearing a little bit more about their new lead guitarist, however, a fellow by the name of Bob Weston. Now, this guy had some other flaws that we will discuss, but what you cannot say against him is that he was a bad guitarist. He's a fantastic lead guitarist. And in fact, the only thing in my mind that saves this album in the slightest is that I enjoy listening to his guitar tone on it. But everything else about Penguin, the bizarre, muddled 1973 follow-up to Bear Trees that lacks Danny Kirwan and has these two new members and is just another massive rearranged facelift for Fleetwood Mac Boy, you know, this one is as low as it gets for this group, in my opinion. I think it's a significant miss uh, and might be the worst album of this era that we're going to tackle today, with one exception, which I'll talk about in, in just a moment. Uh, you know, any traces of that old blues rock are gone, especially with Kerwin now out of the band. And Christine McVie would uh, assert herself even a little more on Penguin, but 
this is to my ear the least cohesive effort of this era even as members are shuttling in and out and um you know one of the things about fleetwood mac is that uh, the members don't write together right uh, rarely but you don't see like a mcvee uh welch track they're not collaborating when they write so they're only collaborating when they actually are performing these songs and this, to my ear, is the least cohesive effort. Um, I'm not saying there's conflict, and certainly there are new members here, but these songwriting voices and these the performers are like are, are pushing each other away instead of pulling together in the performance of these songs. It's really kind of ramshackle. There, there's there's steel drums on one of these tracks. Did you ever love me? <laughs> um, that's kind of a a recipe. It's so for intolerable. It, it, every disaster. time I hear it. Every time I hear the steel drums on that song, I want to punch something. It's so bad. They put it on the box set of all things, too. Yeah. They, they cover uh, I'm a Roadrunner, which uh, which Political Beats listeners will know would, was later turned into Roll With It from Steve Winwood. But they cover I'm a Roadrunner here, uh, one of the, the two uh, vocal appearances by Dave Walker here. And it's pretty terrible. Um, dissatisfied is not that great. So the one thing I'll pull from here, I think, is McVie's first breakthrough song in my mind and that's i believe the first song on the album remember me i i think that is a tight tight wonderful pop song with great slide uh, work from weston um again that finger picking sort of guitar styling here that buckingham would, would sort of be make more prominent once he joined that's on remember me i i think it's her first really a completely realized song that she brought and and pulled off and it is by far the highlight of Pink. Again, Scott and I are in agreement. I think this is a forgettable album. It drops often into wallpaper, but it's beginning to become McVie's band. And when you start this album for the first time and you hear Remember Me, you think, oh, this is going to be really good <laughs> because that is a terrific track. Uh, and it signals where the band is going and where she's going, but unfortunately not yet. I don't understand why Dave Walker is in the band. I don't understand why he's allowed to sing. He doesn't fit. It's jarring. The The rest of the album is filler. Other than Remember Me, the next best track, in my view, is Dissatisfied, which again is a McVie track. So you know, they're back to... They're back to being in no man's land. And again, this is one of the strange things about 
Pink Floyd, uh, Pink Floyd, about Fleetwood Mac, <laughs> is that like Pink Floyd, they have these various iterations and that leads to some subpar output. Once they get into a coherent phase, you can hear it. Mm-hmm. You know, not, not to belabor the point, but the same people recorded Dark Side of the Moon and Wish You Were Here. The same people uh, recorded uh, Future Games and Bear Trees. The same people recorded Fleetwood Mac, the 1975 album, and Rumors, and it shows. And you have to feel sorry for the band in some sense because they have these two excellent successive records where they look like they're building and they're getting better and better and then another one of their band members goes crazy (laughs) another one of their band members is kicked out and they're back to square one um and i don't know if they knew it but if they did they must have thrown their hands up and said well what is it that we have to do to to engender some stability um because they must have noticed by that point that the the good work took a while to to come along. Um, now, that actually, oddly enough, did not affect the sales of this record, which probably because the last two were so good, uh, did pretty well. Um, in fact, I believe that up until this point, it's... it's yes. um, it's their highest U.S. charter up to this yeah, point. Yeah, it's their best-selling record in America. Well, I think, but it did there's not. There's no accounting for the tastes of Americans. That's all I can say <laughs> about that. But no, I mean, it's funny thing though is that if you look at bands that produce really good work, often the the records that do best are the ones after the best. Right. Work. Right. Now that that's not true when you hit stratospheric levels, um, but. Penguin is just a good example of an album that was presumably bought on faith because the last couple had been so good. And it is, it is not good. And um, happily, it was not, you know, their last record. They didn't all run away and say, well, let's do something else with our lives. But um, what, a, what a letdown. Yeah, I mean, I don't have anything else to say about it than what I said at the beginning. You guys have covered everything else that needs to be said. This is a terrible album. I think maybe the only other thing of note is that it introduced the Penguin into Fleetwood Mac's iconography. It's sort of their their unofficial symbol. Apparently, John McVie used to live near the British Zoo and was fascinated by watching the Penguins play. And I don't know. You know, it seems like, you know, like as interesting as taking photographs of storm drains, which apparently Jeremy Corbyn did. So I don't really understand why people are fascinated by Penguins. There you go with Penguin, the title, the title of the album. And the shame of it is that the people who bought Penguin on Faith probably didn't end up buying the next one on Faith because they said, well, this album sucked. And that's where they missed out. And, of course, even if they – okay, here, imagine this. You bought the last Fleetwood Mac album because you really like Bear Trees. Penguin, that, that sucked. And you say, well, I guess I'm not going to buy this on Faith. But then you go to the record store and you see the record in the, in the, uh, in the bins. And you're thinking, well, maybe it can't be all bad. And then you're confronted with the cover of Mystery to Me by Fleetwood Mac, which is, I don't know how you guys analyze this, but it's a giant ape. And uh, these are hand-drawn cartoons of a giant ape 
with a very wrinkly face eating a cake and an ice cream sandwich or a book. Uh, and <laughs> I don't know how to make it. It's one of the ugliest album covers of all time. And you would think this band is sinking into incompetence, is it not? You would be much mistaken because this is one of the greatest lost albums of the early 70s. Mystery to Me by Fleetwood Mac is a hidden triumph. It's like, you know, like a scene in an Indiana Jones movie where he hacks away the last big vine hanging down, and then all of a sudden you see the uh, the big world of you know the hidden city of some South American jungle come into view. That's how good this album is, in my opinion. I had no idea that they were making music as as tough as this, as weird as this, as melodic as this. They even do a stupid cover of For Your Love that the album label compelled them to do, and somehow that works too. Is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. But is it better than the first self-titled Fleetwood Mac album with Buckingham and Nicks? Oh yeah, it's better than that, I think, quite easily. This is one that I'm going to recommend very strongly and very unreservedly. I don't know what you guys think about it. I'm going to disagree with you that it's better than the self-titled Fleetwood Mac album with Buckingham and Nicks, but I do think it's really good. I think this is the point at which it becomes Christine McVie's band. I think it's the point at which they make a conscious decision to start writing songs that sound good on the radio. I think this is the point at which they become tight. Uh, the The previous three albums, one of which is good, uh, two of which are good, one of which is not, um, are are really enjoyable, uh, but they are indulgent at points. They're, they're prog rock. This is this is a tight album. Um, this is this feels more planned. This feels more produced. It feels more pruned. Um, and what Fleetwood Mac would become in a couple of years was exactly that tight, compressed, pruned, arranged, sheared, if you will. And what I see here is perhaps aware that the last record wasn't too good. McVie and Welch getting together and saying, okay, we've got to do a much better job than we did and we've got to take over. And they do... And they do it more in a late Lennon and McCartney sense than an early Lennon and McCartney. They're not sitting down at a piano together and writing songs, but they are writing songs individually and running them past each other. Um, and it's a nice, uh, it's a nice record. But Jeff, you're wrong. It's not as good as the <laughs> Fleetwood Mac album. 
Jeff had told me before we before I started getting through, um, he asked me if I'd heard Mystery to Me before, and I said no. And he said you're in for a real treat. And uh, you know, going through the albums, I of course I forget which one he's referring to. I just knew that he had he had promised me that it was going to be something was going to surprise me. It was going to be a treat. And so I look back, and uh, yeah, it's Mystery to Me he was talking about. And loathed as I am to admit it, uh, Jeff is right. This is a great album, uh, almost surprisingly so, especially coming off of uh, a Penguin, because you don't know what they have, and you don't know where they're going to go. But this is uh, this is an album. You know, uh, Welch writes um, six of the songs, co-writes another, so he's a big presence here. And as Charlie mentioned, Christine McVie is a big presence here, and they are sort of. <laughs> leading the band to water and making them drink. Uh, these are these are really good songs. And I, I think sometimes we underestimate, maybe not, but the the effect that really good production can have on a good set of songs. And the production on Mystery to me is, to me, outstanding. It's uh, It starts to play to the band's strengths, which musically now is... Uh, the rhythm section in, in a lot of ways. And this production on Mystery to Me is it's punchy, it's more muscular. The songs themselves are more rhythm-based, rhythm-focused in a lot of places. When you look through the heart of this album, uh, Hypnotized, which will end up on my list of five songs, that is just outstanding. The, the way the drums open with Mick on his hi-hat has this very mystical-type sound. Christine McVie comes in, adds her keys, these whispered, airy, dreamlike backing vocals. Again, they're really getting to understand uh, the, the layering and the production that will help them really succeed in a, a few albums to come. They say there's a place down in Mexico where a man can fly over mountains and hills. And he don't need an airplane or some kind of engine. Never will Now you know It's a meaningless question to ask If those stories are right Cause what matters most Is the feeling you get When you're hypnotized When it seems like a dream We got you hypnotized Body has nothing. See, seems like a dream. They got you in the time. Yeah, that's when. That's when they got you. Been, you know, forever. Again, is very groove heavy. The groove is the point. And it's somewhat unusual to be highlighting that that rhythm section so strongly on these Fleetwood Mac tracks, uh, and, and and heavy too. You know, uh, Welch writes "What the City" and "Miles Away" later on. Those are very heavy songs. Uh, or hypnotized. The, hypnotized. the rhythm of hypnotized right. is yeah. incredibly heavy. Yeah. Um, Emerald Eyes, for that matter, too. Emerald Eyes. All that. I, I love the drum sound they get on Emerald Eyes. <coughs> oh, I was. That, I have so much to say just about the kick drum. Yes. That would play with yes. Emerald Eyes. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. I have that in my okay. notes. Go ahead. Okay. Well, Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, Oh, God, yeah, it's so good. Okay, so the song is like, it begins as this sort of gauzy, 
you know, you know, loping Bob Welch ballad. It's really good, but and when it kicks into the into the chorus, then all of a sudden Fleetwood rushes forward with this this vunk, and the microphoning of the drums and the production and the mixing in particular is so wonderful that it's just a subtle volume kick in the drums and it just rushes towards your ears where it goes find you know what is it like find emerald eyes in the night gleaming shiny and bright you get that kick there as if covered with silver she's just a mystery to me it's the title track of the album uh fantastic use of drumming and not only just the drum work that mick plays but also the way that it's produced and mixed this is you you know that fleetwood mac is not they're not kids anymore this is really 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 minute attention to detail And, and this is a little thing, but you can tell that the band is acting more like a band again because Welch gives one of his songs to McVie to sing. Mm-hmm. And that was rare in Fleetwood Mac at any point up until now. You had too many individuals essentially collating their work and putting it under the the brand name Fleetwood Mac. But I think that highlights what Welch and McVie start to do and what they will especially do on the next record, which is um, work together to a high standard selflessly in order to advance the band rather than come in, put in their day's work, leave, and wonder at what track points their songs will be listed. Now I interrupted you, Scott. Did you have anything to? I was just, were... I was just wrapping up the the punchy kick drum on Emerald Eyes was my last major point on Mystery to Be. I mean, when you were talking about the way Fleetwood plays, and again, he's such a versatile drummer. That's the thing that that, that comes to you listening to this journey from '67, from you know nothing but the blues, to like now '73. They're playing these weird poppy, proggy kind of you know drugged out hypnotic songs is this rhythm section could do anything and of course you know what they're about to do next because that's just around the corner but you know you hear the subtleties on emerald eyes which have already gone over but also i think v is at her absolute best on this record i love just crazy love and believe me and keep on going those are songs that uh, yeah i always think of keep on going as being a mcvee song but you're right it's a welsh song um he was so smart to give it to her. She does a much better job with it yeah, than, she does, yeah. than, than, than he would. I don't want to trade you to be happy. That's only play and play. But if I dream about it, it makes me wonder. For every good thing must you get back. But I won't worry 
Maybe the way I feel, which is a, a big V song, is the only thing on this record that's somewhat less than necessary. They had an outtake from it. It would have been another Welsh track, which is probably why it wasn't done, called Good Things Come to Those Who Wait, which is just another stunning outtake from you know the album. Uh, he was there's a reason that this is the album he dominates the most. I think he has like seven songs on it. Uh, but Miles Away, where he, you know, Again, very much like Inherent Vice, that sort of hippie paranoia. This, this, this Southern California. Uh, you know, this is the guy who is the vegan and you know believes in the alignments of the stars, but also really hates hates the big city, and he wants to get away from everything else. You know, everything goes up in a, in a cloud of smoke. Uh, and what was it? All those Hare Krishnas turned out to be jokes, and now you're gone, miles away. And then the band just starts literally firing away like a rocket. Again, you listen to yourself and realize that like Fleetwood Mac is doing things that Fleetwood Mac had never done before, playing in styles that they had never pulled off before. Well, the swamp is getting deeper all the time, and the faces that I see don't seem to shine. That's right. There's too much Warhol hanging off the wall And the mystery that there used to be is gone tried country music country folk and that's what you get on the last song on mystery to me which i think is another one that contends for being one of fleetwood mac's greatest songs of all time certainly from this era and that's christy mcvee's why you know this is the her in, in sort of the full flower of her triumph as a songwriter from this early era um when she started just sitting in with the band in 1968 and then, you know, playing her own sort of halting compositions, the fact that she'd get to this, which begins with that long, is it Dobro? Is it pedal steel? I don't know what it is, that guitar introduction. And then it, it sinks in with the piano and then it comes into this glorious piano ballad. There are very tasteful strings there hidden in the end. And Dave Walker playing that wonderful electric guitar ending to filigree that, that ends the song. It ends the album. It ends their boxed set for a reason. 
It is one of the finest endings to any Fleetwood Mac album. I think Why is as good a song as, say, Gold Dust Woman or I'm So Afraid or anything from the Buckingham Knicks era. I think it stands up with all of those, and, and it's a fantastic album to an album that doesn't really have any low lights or low moments. I think it's just worth reiterating again how strange it is that at this point you've had the same drummer and the same bass player and the same piano player throughout, but the front men keep changing. And indeed, the piano player has been promoted, in a sense, to... <laughs> to... Well, I think it's also worth pointing out that Christine McVie plays a, a, a style of piano that is very properly called rhythm piano. Right. Because she's a part of that rhythm section, too, which is why once she finally officially joined the band after having sat in with them so many times already, uh, it, it was such a natural fit. The glue was there. It was perfect. You know, she, you... she never didn't feel like she belonged playing with McVie and with Fleetwood. No, of course. But, but you, you talk, and Scott talked about the evolution of the rhythm section. But well, they, the all evolved, they all evolved as a whole together because they, she was part of that rhythm section too right. from the yeah. jump. And everyone else is gone. And the rhythm section is, you know, there's the joke in Spinal Tap about drummers. But bands tend to replace their drummers. They replace rhythm guitarists, piano players. They replace their bassists. Well, Fleetwood Mac does the opposite. And so by the time you get to this point, you have an in incredibly locked in rhythm section that can take pretty much anything on you get a new guy who comes in as, as happens repeatedly and he's got all sorts of ideas maybe he plays guitar in a different way well the rhythm section can handle it because they've been through you know, five front men in in five years this is almost like a fantasy like you know like a daydream scenario where like if you could have one band like work up your song right. one rhythm section who would it be you'd have to pick fleetwood mac it's like it's like rookie of the year or whatever that game is where where that movie is where like the, the kid gets to play even though he's like eight years old or whatever it is like you get to have your song worked up by fleetwood mac and they could do it, and they could take it in seven different directions for you because that rhythm section is so versatile that they can 
and that's why some of these albums seem to sort of lack continuity because they're capable of trying their hand at everything. It's probably a skill they picked up as early as playing with Spencer. All those those weird fifties, like you got to do Elvis now, you got to do Jerry Lee now, you got to do Buddy Holly, you know now you got to do like you know some sugary sweet fifties pop song. Like they had to learn to play at all sorts of strange styles very early on, but now it's bearing the fruit here on this album and on what comes. Whereas you know they can slide into any pocket easily. Exactly. Let me let me pause. So this is what I mean when I say that people underestimate just how crazy Fleetwood Mac's story was. That this is a band history that could have been the history of three other bands combined. Because you might think to yourself, now that they have put out a truly top-tier album, Mystery to Me, this is the moment where they finally triumphed commercially. This is the moment where they finally made it big in America, isn't it? Well, actually, Hypnotize did get a lot of radio airplay. And they would have loved to go and capitalize upon that American radio success by playing a tour of america but then of course mick fleetwood the drummer found out that uh dave weston the guitarist was sleeping with mick fleetwood's wife so you know that happens uh you know guitarist is is uh you know sleeping on his boss uh and uh so uh, he had to fire their lead guitarist and then they had to cancel the tour okay bad enough Fleetwood Mac has to cancel a tour. But man, if there's one thing Fleetwood Mac knows how to do, it's replace guitarists. No. <laughs> Instead, what happens, and this is, again, you cannot make this shit up. What happens is that Fleetwood Mac's manager puts a fake band out on the road of like random nobodies and calls them Fleetwood Mac and puts them out to play concerts under their name against their will. I think he offers some line like, you know, Mick said this is all right. Now he'll show up and he'll start playing with them soon too, blah, 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 blah. He, he made up a line. Uh, but anyways, he puts a fake band that's touring under the band's name out there on the road. It's it's like you can't believe this could happen, and it did. Uh, they get to go to, go to court with their ex-manager, obviously ex now, um, and they're, you know, trying to win back the rights to their own name. They eventually do. But this sort of chaos is not good for anything. It completely stopped whatever potential momentum they might have had from Mystery to Me dead in its tracks, while also providing one of the more hilarious stories of the rock and, era. And the... Jeff, b- before we move on from that story, I think we ought to explain how incestuous the whole thing was, because uh, Fleetwood's wife is called Jenny. <coughs> Jenny's maiden name... Jenny Boyd. Boyd. Jenny Boyd is the sister of Patty Boyd, who married George Harrison. Patty Boyd was stolen away from George Harrison by Eric Clapton, who was in the same band, although not at the same time, the Blues Breakers, (laughs) as Peter Green. (laughs) It it really, you really could not write this. This is what rock music is like in 1973. Peter Green and... Yeah, Mick Fleetwood shared a band. The, the, the circles, the cycles, and the, the fact that everyone on the British scene knew each other is what makes those stories so easy. It's six, six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but you could put somebody like Delaney and Bonnie in <laughs> right. there instead. And probably connections to everybody. But anyways, uh, Scott, why don't you take us into what will be the last album that we treat during this episode of Political Beats, the first part of our discussion of Fleetwood Mac. Heroes are hard to find with one of the... Well, I guess you could say it's certainly a striking album cover. Yeah. 
This is um, Fle- Fle- Mick Fleetwood, very gaunt man, is he not? <laughs> yes. A lot of ribs. Yeah, a lot of ribs. This is the first album that they end up recording here in the U.S. and uh, was their highest charting U.S. Uh, record uh, before the Buckingham Knicks era. As you know by what comes next, it's their last with Welch as well. And it is, I will admit, a disappointment after mystery to me. Um, and I, I had a hard time putting my finger on exactly why that is. Uh, because there's nothing that offends me here. And there's no sort of stylistic departure to which I would say, oh, well, clearly they shouldn't have done that. It's just not as good as mystery to me, and it's certainly not as good as what would be next when Fleetwood Mac, the uh, the, the other self-titled Fleetwood Mac, is released. There's some good stuff here, and I think Jeff's a big fan of Come a Little Closer, so I won't say too much about that. Other no, I'm not. Oh, you're not? Okay. No. Well, I like it. Uh, well, sneaky- good. Then, then praise it all you want. I was about to <laughs> say bad things about it. I like it. Sneaky Pete placed uh, pedal steel, which is a nice uh, uh, addition to uh, to the sound. So there's a, there's a there's a guest there. I like Welch's She's Changing Me, uh, which sort of, it's an upbeat, memorable melody, which is not exactly par for the course for Welch. It has this rolling sort of folk pop uh, feel to it, uh, which I like. Coming Home and Angel are both Welch songs, but I don't think they're among his very best. Um, They're a little bit plodding. Uh, I don't want to use the word aimless again, but I, I'm not sure they're as focused as some of the work on, on the last album was, but it seemed like they were really trying to play for keeps. It's a couple of Welch songs that don't quite hit the mark from me. Almost almost perversely, they, they go from really one of their most accessible albums to delivering a, a denser, to my ear, a more opaque LP. And... Um, uh, like even uh, a bad loser is a song that Christine McVie wrote, and it's not one of my favorites that she did. It sounds like she's writing to emulate the way that Welch would write a song. It's just it's very odd. The pieces do not come together in a strong way for me throughout. Heroes are hard to find, and I'm uh, not, I guess, surprised that uh, they would find a new way forward after it. I don't think there's a great deal that stands out about this record. To, to me, it's a background record. But it is worth noting that this is the moment when they move to America, essentially. Because this is the first record other than their live album that is recorded in the United States, specifically 
in Los Angeles and Fleetwood. Well, Mac there was the Blues Jam in Chicago too, by the right, way. Right, that's what I say. Other than the live live stuff. All oh, right, right. But this yeah, was right. this was when they moved to Los Angeles, and as everyone knows, Los Angeles treated Fleetwood Mac pretty well. They they eased themselves into that scene uh, with a plum, and of course, it would lead to all that is going to happen in episode two. This just follows the Fleetwood Mac pattern, though, of triumph followed by either disaster in the case of Penguin or meh in the case of this. And I think it says something about Christine McVie that is going to sound rude, but I don't mean it in that sense. And that is that Christine McVie, by this point, has come into her own and along with Welch is the band leader. But actually, it's not enough to take them to the stratosphere. Oh, how rude. She is extremely talented and she makes great contributions. But she's she's one player among many. And Welch isn't quite good enough and McVie isn't quite good enough to push them up into top 20 band of all time status. And had they continued with this lineup, but had um, uh, had Welch stayed in the band, I should say, um, I think they would have done okay. But I don't <clears throat> think they would have got to where they did. And you know, if, again, I don't want to to preempt the episode two. But if you look over the next few years, McVie is vital to the band, but she's actually not the front woman. Um, and here she is being asked to be the front woman, or at least one of two, and. She's better in a in a supporting but somewhat main role. And what Heroes Are Hard to Find tells me uh, is is that, that they maybe had one or two good albums in them as a duo, but it is good for the history of the band that they eventually bring in other people. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I completely agree. I've always been very disappointed by this album. It's, <clears throat> I guess it, it it reaches the level of cromulence, which is not a great, you know, achievement. I think one of the things that's always really hurt it with me is I hate the title track. I hate the horns on that yeah, song. Yeah, the horns so are much. back. I don't like them. Yeah. Oh, it, it's so obnoxious. Just give me a version that doesn't have those, and that would be fine. Yeah, heroes are hard to find. This song is obnoxious. I've never liked to come a little bit closer. Um, so I don't really like McVie's contributions to this album. I uh, I think Welch's are also kind of like yeah, of a lesser echelon. I think Angel is quite good, and I've always liked the moody stuff like Bermuda Triangle. I guess you've heard about the Bermuda Triangle. There's something going on. Nobody seems to know just what it is And the Air Force won't let on Might be a hole down in the ocean Yeah, or a fog that won't let go Might be some crazy people talking Or somebody that we ought to know Down in Bermuda Pale blue sea Way down in the triangle, it's easy to believe. Now here's one, you see strange shapes in the light, shadows in the night. 
but she's changing me the one that scott mentioned that to me is very clearly the best song on this record uh, mm-hmm. and it's got those nice nice uh, i believe pedal steel playing going on in the background um but a, a very clever little like you know you know folk pop melody uh it's the only thing on this record that's ever really stuck with me and it, it's sort of a strange and anticlimactic ending to this you know first part of fleetwood Mac's career I think it's also, you know, fair, and now we'll knock on them uh, to say that Charlie is essentially correct that uh, this is basically where they had topped out mystery to me, and that's again that's that's not a criticism because mystery to me is a fantastic record. I think it's like a nine out of a ten record, uh, but that was as good as this band was going to get under these circumstances. Now maybe you know you get somebody as good as Dave Weston back playing guitar. Uh, then fine, you 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 can do a little bit better, uh, but you're still not going to get to the places that they get when you know Lindsey Buckingham joins the band because you need new blood in terms of songwriting, and they didn't have that proper alchemy just yet. But it doesn't mean that the music that came from this early fascinating era of the band, before basically anybody in America pretty much had even heard of who they were unless they really looked on the back of, of their Santana album and looked at the credits on the label uh, <laughs> for the song Black Magic Woman. Uh, this this music from this era from 1967 to 74, which is fully half of the story of Fleetwood Mac, is fantastic. Uh, Peter Green was such an underrated blues guitarist, an underrated singer and blues performer, and I really have always loved Danny Kirwan's contributions to this band as well. I really recommend you go back and listen to as much of this as you can. And that there takes us to the end of this era of Fleetwood Mac and the end of part one of our two-part episodes on the band. So we reached the point which three of us will give all of you two albums you should own from this period and the five songs you need to hear uh, with such stylistic differences. We'll see if these are some interesting lists. We turn things over to our guest, senior writer for National Review Online, Charles C.W. Cook. Your two albums and your five songs, please. I thought a lot about this because what I wanted to do to give people a window into the various iterations of the band in this initial period was to pick one of Future Games or Bear Trees and then add one of the early blues albums. But I think I can't. Because if I were 
to sit down and listen to representative samples from the different iterations, I would choose the singles of Peter Green. I would choose Oh Well. Uh, I, I would choose um, Albatross. Um, I would choose Need Your Love So Bad. So I think I'm going to go for Bear Trees and Future Games because I think, objectively speaking, those are my two favorite of uh, the the era. Songs is harder. Well, the the number one song has to be Need Your Love So Bad. I could listen to it all day. When Jeff sent me those various recordings <laughs> of it, I did listen to it all day. My wife came in and told me to stop it. Um, I think she slightly confuses the initial riff with um, with a, a song that is more sexual in nature. Uh, oh, it sounds Marvin like Marvin Gaye. Yeah, Marvin Gaye's uh, "Let's Get It On." It sounds track. a lot like the opening <laughs> to "Let's Get It On." It does. And it's funny if I ever play that riff on the guitar, she looks at me as if it's a come on, and I have to say, <laughs> "No, no, no! It's need your love so bad," which doesn't really work as an excuse because it sounds just as. Uh, <laughs> You're right. I need your love so bad. <laughs> it could have been a Marvin Gaye title, right? Right, but I will take. Need Your Love So Bad, Oh Well, Woman of a Thousand Years, Sometimes, and Bear Trees. All right, so I I will do, I guess, what Charlie thought he was going to do, which is uh, take one very early album and and one from the uh, less blues-oriented side of Fleetwood Mac. So uh, Mystery to Me makes my two. I think that's, I think it's the best album of them all from this era. So Mystery to Me, certainly. And then I will go back to the the uh, very beginning and say that first bluesy Fleetwood Mac album will give you, those two will give you a good flavor of what was happening in this era. Uh, on the songs, Yes, Need Your Love So Bad is on my list as well. That might be the very best song of this era. Uh, I like Station Man, that Kerwin uh, song from uh, from uh, from that album. Uh, a Bear Trees, yes. Uh, Remember Me from Christine McVie is the one high point of Penguin that is worth seeking out. And then Hypnotized from Mystery to Me would be my fifth track. Charlie already said, oh, well, but if I had a sixth, it would probably be, oh, well. That's a fantastic song. Uh, Jeff, over to you. Okay, so to represent the blues era of Fleetwood Mac, I'm going to go not with any of their albums. I'm going to go with the original Fleetwood Mac, the uh, one that I discussed earlier that was released in 71. It's the best way to experience them, you know, not in their singles form, but just as playing straight-up blues. Uh, the variety is remarkable. The performances are there. You really understand the power of this band and, and why they were so appealing back then, why they're still to this day considered to be the cream of the crop of the bands that came out of that late 60s blues boom. As for my five songs, boy, I was going to choose Need Your Love So Bad, but you uh, sneaky folks who get in front of me uh, both picked it, so I'm going to then instead take a left turn and pick the one of the weird instrumentals uh, that has ascended to the top of the United Kingdom's charts. That, of course, is Albatross, a lovely, peaceful, gentle, floating song, sound painting in the finest tradition of the term. I love it. Uh, 
it's part also important because it represents the moment where <clears throat> Peter Green and the rest of the band were beginning to break out of their blues only straight jacket and then head all the way now towards pop and rock music and sort of, you know, where they were going to be by the end of the year 1970 and where they were going to be is with my second pick, which is the Green Monolishi, uh, a document uh, of quite honestly, bluntly, a soul in torment. That's what you hear in that song. He literally ends it by screaming, going like, like these weird grunting oohs and ahs that don't really seem entirely sane, but the music is beautiful, the guitar playing is legendary, and the desperation is undeniable. My third song is going to be Future Games from the album Future Games. I love that 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 album so much, and I love the title track, the semi-prog, the slow roll that it takes, the confidence with which it moves through its changes. That's fantastic, but even better than that is Sometimes, my fourth song, which is also from Future Games. I love that sort of the slow-rolling country ballad. It's like a sitting by a babbling brook on a, a nice, sunny, sunny uh, Sunday afternoon. It's a beautiful track. And I guess for my fifth song, I'm going to end uh, by going back to the Peter Green era with their first single, which appallingly neither of you two are all that familiar with, and that's Man of the World. Uh, that was... You know, where Peter Green says, you know, uh, I could tell you about my life. They say I'm a man of the world. Uh, uh, I have everything I wished. I just wish I was never born, that I'd been dead, that I had never been born. And uh, that's how you know that Peter Green is not feeling very happy these days. But the song itself is, is beautiful. It was their follow up to Albatross and was almost as big a chart hit at the time. And it's one that people really need to hear if they want to understand what early Fleetwood Mac was about. I could tell you about my life and keep you amused, I'm sure, about all the times I There we are, the Political Beats look at the first part of the career of Fleetwood Mac. We thank our guest, Charles C.W. Cook, senior writer for National Review Online, co-host of the editors, Mad Dog and Englishman podcasts. Find him at charlescwcook.com. Sign up for his weekly newsletter out on Saturdays. Charles, thanks for joining us. Please come back for part two. Otherwise, we'll leave the audience on a cliffhanger. They won't know what happens next. <laughs> They're going to want to know what happens. <laughs> this would be like the worst cliffhanger, like worse than if Radiohead broke up right after OK Computer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Charles, thanks to you. Jeff, uh, we continue on. Part two of Fleetwood Mac is next as we roll on through the end of this 2021 year. Indeed. I cannot wait for it. At Esoteric CD on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Again, we remind you, our Patreon page, patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Support us, help the show stay ad-free. All those different levels of support are available there, and lots of goodies for you if you help us out. Now we come to the part of the episode where we thank those who help make the show happen. Yes, our fine Patreon supporters. Jeff Wood, Matthew Jones, 
Frank Landymore, Jonathan Ellsworth, Grant Adkins, Andrew Lutz, Elise Kogan, former guest Andrew Fink on board, Jay Pinkerton, and Claire Camarano. Thank you specifically and all of you Patreon supporters generally for your support to help keep the show ad-free and help us go on patreon.com slash politicalbeats for more information. Also, subscribe to our feed for new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or go right to nationalreview.com. Click on podcasts, find all the fine NR audio, including this show right here. Find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, join the conversation at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.